Welcome to the Sneaky Dragon Listening Party with my dad and my sister Mary. Hello, partygoers, and welcome to another episode of Sneaky Dragon Listening Party. My name is David Dedrick. And my name is Mary Dedrick. And last week we had the exciting episode 50, marking the fact that we had done 50 episodes. Yep. And this week it's just the boring, dull, old episode 51. Mm-hmm. Boo, nobody cares about it. Well, that does mark that we've done 51 episodes. Who cares, Mary? It doesn't end at a zero or a five. But... Dad, yes. today yeah. we have recorded more episodes of this podcast than ever before. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> we're one ahead of where we were last time. Yeah. Oh, once it's one one foot in front of another, Mary. Yes. As the abominable snowman once told Chris, uh, Santa Claus. Oh. What do you mean? Oh. In what? In Santa Claus is uh, coming to town. Oh. You don't remember that one? I don't remember him telling him one foot in front of another. He sang a song. He goes, "Put one foot in front of the other." And soon you'll be walking across the floor. Nope, don't remember that. Don't remember that? No. How come I remember it? It was way, way longer ago <laughs> than I watched it. Well, I guess I watched it with you. So yeah. We didn't watch Santa Claus is Coming to Town together? Like the, no, we probably did. The story of, of Santa Claus? The completely made up, fictitious story of Santa Claus? As he was invented by the Coca-Cola company? Wait, no. Yeah, Santa Claus is Coming to Town. That's not different than The Year Without a Santa Claus, which is yes, a story which is about... my favorite. Because it has heat miser and cold miser yeah. in it? Yeah, of course, they're the best. They're really good characters, and they have really good songs. <laughs> they do. It's the same song. Well, yeah, but they're still good. <laughs> <laughs> they're the same, exact same songs, only with different lyrics. But other than that, really good. Yeah, no, those are great, uh, we should just, great cartoons. When we get to Christmas, we should just talk about songs from Christmas movies. I'm probably more familiar with those than I am with actual Christmas songs, which which I did go through a period as in my in my um, teen years where I, I love to... Um, Listen to Christmas carols and decorate our Christmas tree. Cute. But those were like a specific set of records that I listened to that right. belonged to my dad. Yes. I didn't like go out and get more records. I just listened to the same ones mm. over and over again. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I, my, I'm pretty limited in my, my music, my Christmas music knowledge. Right. But movie or movie or TV show Christmas music. Yeah. I'm all over it. Mm-hmm. I watch those things. Me too. <laughs> I enjoyed them and I watched them. So Mare, I think... I think we're starting a new mixtape this week. Yep, we yes, are. Yes, we are. This is a mixtape that I made for a listener named Jimmy Fong. I think he came to our show through Totally Tintin, I'm going to guess, because he sent me some Tintin-related things as well when he sent me the CDR. Wait. And I appreciated it for that. What's that? I'm pretty sure you did the CD thing before Totally Tintin. I don't know. I actually, I don't, I don't know. I don't know the dates of anything. I don't... Yeah, I don't know. You could look it up, I guess. It's not really... I'm pretty it, sure. I don't know. I mean, it's possible... But remember, this stretched out quite a while. This this yeah. uh, tape was from uh, 2017. Oh, okay. This mixtape. So it wasn't really a tape, everyone. I, I'm just using those terms very loosely. Very loosely. I don't even know if they make cassette tapes anymore, or maybe only one factory left in the entire world makes them. Oh, I was wrong. 2015. There you go. We were productive in those days, Ian and I. Now we're lazy. Um, You, you are currently doing three podcasts. Ugh. A couple of bums. Hmm. You were doing two at the time, at that time. So you're doing more now than you were then. Oh, I was a real, I was so lazy back then. Mm, that's not what I was going for, <laughs> but okay. I guess you can always interpret things the wrong way. 
I don't think inter- I think you well you're implying that subjective ex- experiences can be right or wrong. Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> is, that, is that right? Yep. You think opinions can be wrong? Yes. Huh. Mary, you better get I have some news for you. You mm-hmm. live in a postmodern world. There own, are no wrong opinions. Yes, there are. Only wrong facts. Yeah. Those two. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mayor. Mm-hmm. New mixtape. New yeah. new week. Um, cool. I'm feeling very Canadian today. You're feeling very Canadian today. Why I is am, that? Because I'm drinking an ice cap from Tim Hortons. Okay. An American-owned company. Yes. But one time. One time. One time Canadian. Named after a Canadian. Named after a Canadian hockey player named Tim Horton. who played yes. for the Toronto Maple Leafs. And died in a car accident. Unfortunately, died in a car accident. Coming back from Buffalo, New York. Mm. He drove in his, in his fast car. Mm-hmm. A little too fast, mm-hmm. and and had a car accident. Now, it's, it always sounds impressive that he started a co- uh, uh, a donut or coffee and donut shop, but or a chain. But yes. of course, when he died, it was not a chain. It was just a single store. Yeah, that uh, was based in in Toronto in Hamilton. In Hamilton was it based yeah. in Hamilton? <laughs> even even worse. And uh, <laughs> so it seems like it's impressive, but. You know, it was kind of a s- small potatoes compared to what it became, which was a yes. national chain. Yep. Which was then sold to a... Burger King. Burger, it was sold to Burger King? Well, it's owned by the same company that owns Burger King. Well, that explains... Burger King, uh, Tim Hortons, and now they own Pop- and they own Popeyes as well, which I think is why we are seeing more Popeyes in Canada now. Oh, okay. Okay. Did you know that a Popeyes has opened up in Jilliwack? I didn't know that. There was there's, one, there's one in Abbotsford. There was one in, there's also one in Penticton. Hmm. Yep. Well, I've always he- heard that it's very good, I, yeah. but now I'm afraid that it won't be very good because it's just... It's owned by Burger King. <laughs> well, it's just owned by a giant mega corporation, yeah. kind of like KFC. Well, like when I was a kid, KFC was good. Yeah. And no. then it got sold to, to Kentucky Fried Chicken. Or sorry, it got cool. sold to PepsiCo. Oh, yeah. And um, it really went downhill. Hmm. So... I've been noticing, too, that Tim Hortons has been expanding into um, into grocery store stuff. Like kind of oh selling their stuff in grocery yeah, stores. Yeah, like they have they've mm. al- they've always sold like powdered, um, like you know you can get like hot hot chocolate yes powder they okay. sell that but also their French vanilla okay um but now they're selling they have a cereal they have two different cereals wow and um I also saw that they have a canned chili <laughs> that you can buy so you can buy their bland chili they sell yeah. at the restaurant oh, I was wow. like why would you want to buy that there's so many better like canned soup options like okay I've, and i heard that ca- canned things like soup and, and i assume chili and things like that are are, are not doing well they're not doing well because mm. millennials don't like them right they because they're, they're too bland they think they're too square i don't know if is soup, is soup bland like i think that those like chunky soups are pretty bland i, I think people so. are just more focused on um making things themselves more really do you think that i think so okay must have a lot of time yeah, everyone's, you know, working from home and oh, okay. just driving for Uber all the time, staying at home, making sourdough <laughs> or something. I don't know. Well, that can't last forever, can it? They're, they're buying avocado toast instead of houses. I feel like I feel like this is like a bad decision on the part of people to think it's a good idea that working from home is a is an option, is a good option. Like, Why? I think, well, because I feel like you are giving up your your privacy to the, to the companies you work for. Oh, and yeah. And you're making your live, your your work. So, you know, like a company could, you know, it could, especially if you're like a, a person who is an over over uh, over performer. Yeah, you end up working like 10 hours instead of you'll, 8 yeah. hours. Yeah, and then you'll also be like answering emails at 10 o'clock at night. Yeah. And then bosses will start to, to um, 
expect suddenly, that. yeah, have this cert- these subtle expectations will start to creep in. It won't happen right away, yeah, because that's not how things work. But things will slowly creep into your lives, where yeah, you're you're answering emails at ten o'clock at night, and when you don't, when you decide, oh, I'm gonna turn off my phone at nine and not and not do work and stuff like that, yeah. Pretty soon, this is part of like criticism of you too, is that you're not responding to emails, right? And you're and you're like thinking to yourself, well, I always answer my emails, and then you'll realize, oh, wait a second. I'm turning off my phone at nine. I'm not answering emails at 10 o'clock at night. And that's mm-hmm. what's expected of us now. And we're expected to, to work late into the night right. to get projects done. And if we don't, we're, we're held responsible for not, for underperforming and stuff yeah. like that. And this can happen, you know, very subtly. And we're just, we're just totally give, giving into it because we want to wear yoga pants when we're at work. Right. It's essentially, you know, and we're like, oh, we're saving on the commute, you know, mm-hmm. you know saving time. But, you know, sometimes it's valuable to have a separation between your work and your yeah, and I mean, I life. think it depends on the people. I think that there are people who can, who are are more able to like stand up for themselves and go into a situation mm-hmm. being like, I'm going to work from this time to this time and yeah. not past that. Yeah, yeah. Right, and that's going to be, and I'm going to like set goals for myself mm-hmm. and, and do that. But it totally depends on the person, right? It depends on the person, but also depends it, on the company. Yeah, and I think it depends on the, the too. work too, because one of um, Dungan's friends or Dungan's old roommate, yeah, he worked, he did coding. Okay. Um, but for a company that was based elsewhere. Yeah. And so they just rented like a workspace mm-hmm. in Vancouver that he could go to if he wanted to, but he was the only person who used it. Yeah. So he would like take the bus for 35 minutes to get to work Yeah. and have to like pay for the bus yeah. and get there and he'd be the only person there. Yeah. And so he'd just be like sitting in this office by himself all day mm-hmm. and then you have to, yeah, come 35 minutes all the way back through Vancouver um, and it was like, not, you know, he's like, well, what's, what's the point? What's yeah. the point of doing that? Right. Cause yeah. I'm not like, there's no one else there. There's no benefit to me being there. It's really lonely. Yeah. Whereas if he was at home, he could come out and have lunch with us and stuff if we were home. Yeah. Um, yeah. It just depends on your personality too. I, mm-hmm. <clears throat> I probably would not do well in a situation like that because I have a hard time, um, with time management when, if I'm working at home, it's very, very difficult to do. I think. Right. It's easy to, to, um subsume yourself into the life of your family rather than you know be well like i've got to you know go outside and ignore you guys for a while yeah there's a lot of guilt in that you know where mm-hmm. you're you're uh f- you feel like you're letting your family down and also it's i was reading this thing about procrastination and it was talking about how people who procrastinate undervalue what they're doing mm, like yeah so they're just like oh well i'm just doing this it's not that important you know and so you you start to like rank other things higher than that like doing the dishes or getting laundry done and right like that, which you know in a, in a in a mixed up mind can become you can put you know you're putting the value in the wrong wrong place so it's, it's an interesting article it's just talking about how procrastinators should um picture should uh, focus on results so think about the end results of what you're doing right not so much the process mm-hmm. which some some people find the process easier but if you're a procrastinist you get can't uh, overwhelmed by by process sometimes it's easier just to think of of the end result right uh, and what you're going to gain from that whether it's just like being finished the project some sort of res- reward whether that's yeah. money or whatever um yeah i thought that was an interesting article when i lived with my friend sarah we used to study together a lot because mm-hmm. we lived together and we were both in school yeah and yeah we would do studying like that where you have like 
a goal at the end. Yeah. You have like, okay, I'm going to read this many pages and then I'm going to take a break or I'm going to work for like this at a time and then I'm going to do this or like, okay, like we'll go for this long and then we'll like take a break and we can chat for some time or we'll take a break and we'll like go get a coffee or whatever. Yeah. I don't drink coffee, but you know, go down and you know, take a walk around. Sure. Sure. Um, and nice yeah, it's, yeah, it's good to like, and it, I mean, for me too, it was nice to have someone else to hold me accountable. Mm-hmm. I think it was good for her too. Yeah. 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 Well, that is good. And, yeah, and that's maybe what's good in an office situation is that the fact that you can work together as a team. Uh, I guess Zoom meetings will replace that as a as a way to... Uh, yeah. And then, you know, without Zoom meetings, how will we have hilarious animal memes and things like that? Yeah, pet memes. that's true enough. <laughs> but I have found at work that my office um, has become a, a place for people to come and sit. Okay. I have like a chair All right. that's like near my door. Yeah. And it's nice too because it's six feet away from my desk. Okay. Um, so, you know, social distance, Yeah. but I'll just be like working on something in my office yeah. and one of my friends from like the wellness or some other department will yeah. come by and like, just come in and like have a seat and talk to me. Yeah. I'm like, I'm doing something. <laughs> like I'm trying to work on them. I'm not just hanging out in here. Like, let me do my job. <laughs> so I'm just like, mm-hmm. I just like keep working on whatever while they talk. I'm like, yeah, I'm making a poster. <laughs> gotta put this up <laughs> like i'm not giving meds to someone but like people need to know about about bus shuttle changes yeah you know they need to know when they could book their appointments for huh. uh, you you form them through posters yeah do you title them at the top <clears throat> wanted and then put a picture of of a person no but we are doing that um because we're doing a western theme today at the end of the month so oh, okay. we're gonna make cool. wanted posters cool emily made up a couple um with like staff pictures as like a as like a demo. Yeah, yeah. And one of them had like wanted for, and it was a picture of the marketing guy, and yeah. it was like his name, wanted for talking too loud. And I was like, <laughs> oh man, that's so funny. Because whenever he's doing tours, I could always hear him like way down the hallway. <laughs> and I'll say to him like, oh hey, you were, I heard you were here today, because <laughs> I could hear you. <laughs> and then like the next day after I saw this poster. One of my coworkers was talking about how loud he is. And I was like, oh, I need to show you this poster. <laughs> and she said, my supervisor who made it, made it, she said, yeah, he didn't think it was very funny. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. Yeah. Some people have very loud voices. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, like we, for example, we're doing like an Alzheimer's fundraiser mm-hmm. next week. So at the top, it says Alzheimer's Society fundraiser. And then it's got like a picture with like donuts. And then it's got like a big color block at the bottom. And it has like the information about what you can buy. And then on like the donut pictures, it's got ooh, two circles. Okay. With like um, donut sales this day, this time, this place. And raffle ticket sales this day, this time, this place. And the other circle. Yeah. Pretty nice poster. Good. You made we, that? You made that? Yeah. Uh... Uh, so, well, we made it together. Okay. Emily made the basis for it, and then I edited it. Okay. And, like, kind of changed it, because she had originally just had one circle with just donut sales, but I was like, well, we're doing donut sales and, and raffle sales, so we should do two circles with, yeah. like, each. Huh. But, yeah. yeah. We use Canva. Canva's really cool. We have, like, a paid account through uh, work. Oh, I see. Um, But it's cool, too, because all the different buildings have like used that same one yeah so you can kind of piggyback off of other people's stuff okay, okay. So, like if you see that someone from another building did something that you like you can be like well i'm gonna steal that and use it <laughs> so it's also really handy for sharing stuff yeah because like emily can make something on there and then just send me an email and be like hey i made this poster on canva take a look at it and then i'll look at it and be like oh like i duplicated it and like 
made some changes. Do you want to take a look? And you can just like copy the page into the same file. Huh. And yeah, it's handy. Yeah, that's very good. <clears throat> now you can work from home. Uh, no, I can't. So I'm only <laughs> logged into my computer. I actually had a flood in my office this week. Oh, really? Yeah. One of the residents left her sink running and fell asleep. Oh, no. And so it soaked. And she... Yeah, so it soaked into the suite below hers and yeah. into my suite, which is like below hers and then over one. Wow. Um, and so my whole back office is flooded and they have these big fans. They had to get like a restoration company to come yeah, in yeah, yeah. with these like big, big fans to like air everything out. And yeah. They might have to like take a wall out or something. Oh, really? Yeah, it was really They're bad. About mold, hey? Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, I guess it was like running for three hours <laughs> or something. And she was uh, like, I don't know how that happened. I, I never sleep for that long. I was like, okay. Yes, you do. <laughs> yeah, apparently. Um, so I've had to relocate to another office for the week. I think, or yeah, since Tuesday. Okay. I think it might be another week huh? until it's all cleared out. Wow. But yeah, it's not, not helping productivity when I'm like not in my office <laughs> and I don't have my computer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That sucks. Mm-hmm. That's kind of funny. I don't know. It's funny people that it's funny people who don't think they sleep. I think that's a sign of of a restless sleeper, someone who who thinks thinks they don't sleep, but they do sleep. They just don't. They're too restless. They're, yeah, there's too much. Well, she probably wakes up regularly throughout the night. Could be that. Yeah. Or just that they, I don't know, just that they're um, anxious sleepers. So mm-hmm. the anxiety makes you think that you're not sleeping because you're you're having anxiety dreams while you're sleeping, so mm, you right. just never feel rested. Yeah. And your anxiety dreams could be about not sleeping. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I wake up pretty regularly throughout the night. Oh, really? Yeah, I'll wake up at like one o'clock in the morning, and I'll fall back asleep, and I'll wake up at like four o'clock in the morning, and I'll fall back asleep, and I'll wake up at like six, hmm. and I'll fall back asleep, and I'll wake up at like six thirty, and I'll fall back asleep, and I'll wake up at like seven, and then I can't usually fall asleep after seven. Huh. Depending on how bright it is. Yeah. Well, in the summer, I usually won't sleep past like six because it's too bright. Hmm. I can't fall back asleep if it's too bright. I need, I, I need cave darkness to sleep. I had a, an unusually long sleep this week. Oh, yeah. You slept until like noon. I slept till 1130. Mm. Uh, but I went to bed at 2.30ish. Oh, wow. So pretty long sleep for that me. Was pretty long sleep. I, You're catching up. Because, yeah, I think that's what I did. The mom, your mom woke me up at 8. And I was like, oh, that seems like too early to get up when you've been to bed at 2.30. Yeah. So then I just, I just laid in bed until I fell asleep again. Which I can do. Nice. I was up at 7.30 this morning. You're... Oh, oh yeah, is that right? I was yeah. very keyed up about work, though, so I was oh. having all these thoughts about work. So yeah, I've got this big giant project I'm working on. Oh yeah, you're still working on that? Yeah, yeah. So it's um, it's a <coughs> order that's going out. That's um, I think it's how many doors is it? It's like ninety five doors is going out. That's a lot. It's a lot, it's a lot of lot doors. doors. A lot of a lot of materials going out. So <coughs> I was like laying in bed fretting over the fact that. I think I missed a piece of weather strip for one of the orders. Oh, yeah. And I was laying in there going, oh, I didn't, I don't think I added up those that weather strip after I, rec- I recorded it all. Mm-hmm. I drew it like a chart and wrote you know, wrote everything out, checked it all. Mm-hmm. And then I took that and transferred it into my main worksheet. Okay. And then I'm wondering now if I missed a, I missed a line and I forgot to write in one thing. Oh, okay. Like a dum-dum. Well, you can't know until Monday, right? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Well, anyway, let's listen to some music, everyone. That's the purpose of this show. That's why you're here in the Rumpus Room with us. And uh, we'll start with the first song. How's that sound, Mary? Sure, you I know, guess so. You're okay with that idea? Yeah, we don't we'll, want to hit shuffle play. Let's, we'll just go in the order that, that, I, that I put them on the, the mixtape. Yeah, that seems like an original Never idea. Never understood sh- uh, CD players with shuffle play options for CDs. Yeah, that is odd. I, yeah. 
it's strange. Like they put it in that order for a reason, you know? <laughs> they thought about it. Yeah, it's true. Like, even if you got, like, a, a mixed CD, like a CD yeah. that was, like, a compilation. Yeah. It's still, like, a thoughtfully... Yeah, they curate them, you they know? They curated it, yeah, and they, like, listen to they're it. They're on there alphabetically. There's some guy that was, like, like me... <clears throat> fretting over this the cd for yeah. m- for a month moving like oh maybe this maybe here yeah maybe here yeah maybe here oh maybe i'll just take this one off i can't find it. oh no maybe here <laughs> no i'll just take it off i'll have to find something else exactly and then they they sell it to some some bozo who then immediately puts shuffle on their Ugh. cd player i mean i don't mind shuffle they're like oh i'm gonna hit shuffle on this cd illinois by sufian stevens <laughs> they're like Very good i've only got we're like just a little interstitial yeah. bits Toot, you're like Toot. yeah <laughs> They're like, what? They're like, why is this song six seconds long? And they're like, one last woo-hoo for the Pullman. What? Woo-woo-woo. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, it fits in context. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, that just made me think that Sufjan Stevens with Illinois did what Brian Wilson wanted to do with Smile. Did he? Yeah. I never thought about that before, but he really succeeded where what Brian Wilson wanted to do. Because Brian Wilson wanted to do... An album that was like this little piece of Americana mm. that kind of reflected like the history of America up to that <clears throat> point in the 1960s. Oh, okay. And sort of had like these, you know, sort of elements of Americana in it, you know. So, you know, there's a song, songs mentioning like Home on the Range and, and the, and uh, that rock, you know, the rock I'm talking about, but I can't remember the name of it now, where the pilgrims landed, Plymouth Rock. Oh. Just stuff like that, right? Those were mentioned... As in part in the songs and but Sufjan really like nailed it as a yeah as a concept well yeah and Illinois especially is very vast in its like in how much it covers mm-hmm. like especially when you look at the things that are on like the avalanche like the avalanche is a is a truck yes right yeah. like it's talking about like Casimir Pulaski and the avalanche, the truck, and like soups. Yeah, there's like references to Superman and references to Mary Todd and um, like outsider art, like John the Wayne Vivian Gacy. girls, John Wayne Gacy, yeah. like so much stuff. I mean, it's it's all it's all specific to one state. Yeah, and, but as an as like a as like a successful way of of taking the idea of of a smile and that's like incorporating like folk sounds folk elements into it as well mm. like sort you know american folk folk elements mm-hmm. banjo and and those sort of sounds into it yeah he just he just did what what but brian wilson couldn't do but in 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 defense of brian wilson brian wilson didn't have pro tools yes which is his concept of how to make that album was essentially to do a digital style album before digital technology existed yes he was he was limited by the technology of his time well, exactly whereas yes yeah, sofian could like play this and play that and play this and play that and then overlay them all together exactly using technology That's in right. like a much easier way than it would be for brian wilson to do the same thing because when he, wilson was recording smile he was recording the songs in in segments right which then would be would have been edited together yeah but because he kept changing his mind it was really complicated to like have to like resplace all the right because it's all done in magnetic tape as well. Mm-hmm. It wasn't digital, so yeah. Whereas he, with Sufjan, yeah, he can like be like, oh well, like I think this banjo part and this violin would go well together. Yeah. Then he puts them together. and He's like, you know what? I don't like it. <laughs> and it's pretty easy to like separate those. Yeah, yeah. You're you're not like losing those two things by separating them again, right? Or exactly. like yeah. whatever. Yeah. It's not like yeah, a day's work to like put something together just to hear how it sounds. Just and one then song. Have to take yeah. it apart. Yeah. Exactly. Just one song was a day's yeah. work to put together and. and- how it sounded exactly mm-hmm. 
Well, anyway, let's start with our first song. Mary, oh, yeah. Which is not Sophia and Stevens, despite oh. what we uh, were talking about. Okay, I guess. I guess so. I discovered right. that I discovered the negative of, of of buying CDs because I love CDs mm-hmm. and I love owning you know artists that I like a yes. lot. Um, I ordered the Ascension, the new uh, Sufjan Stevens album. Okay, but it's not available on Amazon until October thirteenth. Oh no! Whereas other people are already like getting it. But if I ordered it through Bandcamp, it would have been a reasonable thirteen dollars for the CD, mm-hmm. but an unreasonable sorry eighty dollars in shipping. It's like sixteen dollars in shipping. Ugh. Like, yeah. what, what are they shipping it in? A gold trunk? <laughs> Just send it by. It's like when you order something on eBay, yeah. and you're like, ooh, this is only 83 cents. And then you're like, how come the shipping's $150? <laughs> and they're like, mm, it'll get there in two years. You're like, what? <laughs> I yeah. yeah, I guess I've looked at things on eBay. I don't think I've ever taken the steps to... I have bought something on eBay before. How did it work out? it took a really long time to get here. Okay. Shipping was quite expensive. I see. Um... But the quality of it, like, I got what I expected. Yeah. Or I got, well, one, one, actually, I've got a couple things. Some stuff was not, but it was just, like, I was buying it before I knew how to buy things online. Mm, okay. It was, like, just not buying, like, shoes that are $2, you know? <laughs> and you get them and you're like, oh, that's like, this what, is garbage. That's why they cost $2. Yeah, this is like, oh, cool. Like, I can just take this out of the box and throw it right into the garbage can. Because, <laughs> like... <laughs> The box is more expensive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I've All been, right. I've interrupted us enough, Mary. Oh yeah, okay. What's our first in song? Our, in our quest, in our quest <laughs> to get to the first <laughs> song. Quest to get to the first song. How long have we been recording for? <laughs> an hour. <laughs> this is an hour. I'm editing it down to a, to a solid fifty nine minutes. All right. So um, this is uh, this band is drummer. The song is called Good Golly. It's from their. Uh, um, one time only album, Feel Good Together from ni- uh, from 2009. Let's give a listen to Drummer, everyone. Here we go.
right, and we're back. And Mary. Yes. Time for you to cast your vote. My vote? Yeah. This is, uh, this tells me whether I'm going to take this song off of this mixtape. Wh- what do you mean? Yeah. Take it off? The, I think yeah, the, gonna, that ship has sailed. No, no. I'm going to send a new edited version to Jamie Fong just so he, he'll get, like, your version hmm. of this uh, of this mixtape. Okay. Interesting. Pressure's on you, dear. Well, I'm going to say... Notes, I got my notes. I got my pen ready to take all notes right. here. right. I'm going to say this one is a keep. Oh, it's a keeper. Yeah. All right. Write that down. Keep. All right. Keep. I put an ex- I put a, a exclamation point after it. Cool. Um, what did you like about this song? I thought it was really fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's yelling. Had a good energy. Yeah. I thought. Yeah. 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 It doesn't really give up. It's kind of a little bit like mass romantic, and then it just mm, sort of like yeah. A, it's kind of just like pushes. It just kind of keeps yeah. on going. Yeah. Until it's over. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's pretty ex- pretty excited song. The reason the band was called Drummer is this was a side project of the drummer from the band the black keys do you know the black keys yes you know of them i know of them i haven't met them well yeah uh (laughs) so the drummer of the band this guy named patrick carney Mm -hmm. uh black keys are kind of like the white stripes right in that they have a color in the name of their band Mm -hmm. and also they're a two-person band right the white stripes of course being jack black and and meg black i guess does she have the same name i guess they pretended they were brother and sister right so jack and meg and then and then uh, the Black Keys were were um, Patrick Carney, the drummer, and then isn't it Jack White? Did I say what did I say? Jack Black. Oh, I'm sorry, Jack. <laughs> I think he was School of Rock. <laughs> I think he was School of Rock. I'm sorry. You're right, Jack White. Yeah, that's why the, the white stripes. Yes. Jack White and Meg White. And then the Black Keys is Jack Black and Meg Black. <laughs> Meg Black. That's right. Jack Black and <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. Meg Black. I was trying to think of a famous Meg. Oh. Meg from Meg Ryan? Little Women. Meg Ryan, maybe. Meg Ryan, the actress. Is that what you're trying to think of? I was thinking. Oh no, it's Maggie Gyllenhaal. I was thinking. Yeah. Meg. If you said Meg Ryan, everyone would know who you meant. Yeah. No, I, I know. I just didn't. I couldn't <laughs> remember her name, and I was trying to think. I was like, wasn't it someone else? But yeah. <laughs> Jack Black and Meg Ryan. <clears throat> cool. Uh, no, Patrick Carney and Dan Auerbach are the people who make up the Black Keys. Mary. Right. And so uh, Dan had. Left the reservation and was uh, had made a solo album, so he he was off touring it on his own. And Patrick Carney had nothing to do, so he decided to form a band with a friend named Jamie Stillman, who was a drummer and another. So at this time, I think they've moved to Nashville now, which is where cool people live. But at this time, because Black Keys were uncool, they lived in Akron, Ohio, and so carney formed this formed the band with other musicians from akron and so he had a friend who was a drummer in a band called the, uh called teeth of the hydra mm-hmm. named jamie stillman and they thought you know it'd be fun as if we got together and did, and just like made a record right and so were there any people from akron family no because they're not what? actually from akron oh okay they're hipsters from brooklyn right hence gotcha. their name akron family <laughs> and akron slash family is that right uh, yes that's right yeah. akron slash family. and so uh carney played bass Mm-hmm. Stillman played uh, lead guitar. Okay. And then Stillman suggested, because he wanted the band to have like a kind of a happy, upbeat sound, he suggested they bring in a, another drummer named John Finley from a band called Party of Helicopters or another band called Beaten Awake, just depending on which time you... Or, or how are you feeling like listening to it? Helicopters or being beaten awake? Mm-hmm. He was brought in to play guitar and sing. And then uh, Stephen Clements, who was a drummer in the band called House Guest, he played keyboards. And then finally... They brought in Greg Boyd, who was a flute player in another band. No, I'm joking. He was a drummer in another band called Ghostman and Sandman, and he played drums. Oh. So, uh, yeah. So, uh, Chu, 
I, I, I was reading a quote and they are reading a, um, I was reading a, a review and they said, true to the spirit of, of drummers rushing the beat, the band uh, recorded super quickly. Like they formed in the spring, mm-hmm. they wrote the material, yep. they, they uh, recorded in the summer mm-hmm. and they had the record out in the fall. Right. So they did, did a real f- fast turnaround and it's easy, it was easy too because it came out on Patrick Carney's uh, private label. Uh, his own label, so. Oh yeah, that makes it easy. Yeah, I made it real fast, so didn't have to worry about anything. No, no executives to uh, please. Yes. Or to meddle. Yeah, you no one. To, you don't have to like sell your album to anyone. Yeah, you just just make it and put it out there. Yeah. And, well, I'm glad you enjoyed that. All right. Well, let's move on to our our next song, Mare. This is um, this is XTC, one of my favorite bands from when I was a kid. Probably my favorite band when I was growing up. Okay. Would have been XTC because the Beatles. I, I, oh. No. I mean, I like the Beatles, the but, but I mean, the Beatles weren't of my generation, you know, like it's, right. hard, it's hard to get excited about music that your, your uncle listened to. Mm, that's, Boy, yeah. I'm sure a fan of that music my uncle liked. Yeah. But whereas, you know, there's bands that are, you know, even though the people in the band are, are older than you, it still feels like it's your, your generation of music. Well, yeah, I feel like people often look to people who are in the generation above them. Yeah. Like the music that they're playing, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're off, you're not often listening to... Like people your your same age playing music when you're a teenager. Well, no, when you're a thirteen year old, yeah, no one's doing anything good. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you just want to hear. Uh, yeah. So so yeah, XTC became sort of my band, particularly because I love their their three main albums, which are Drums and Wires, mm-hmm. Black Sea, mm-hmm. and English Settlement. Right. I personally think there's a drop off in in quality. quality for the band after that, and I wouldn't say quality; it's just a change in style. Because they became more of a studio project and because they quit playing live. Oh, okay. And I think that did affect their sound. They, it became much more studio-oriented. And Todd Rundgren, who produced them for for uh, their album, um, that one, Skylarking, he commented that, they, that he felt like because they were a studio band, it was the only time they could really play. And so they just loved, they just didn't want to leave the studio. Right. And so they would just layer and just keep on adding and adding more oh, things okay. where he felt like they were kind of over icing the cake and he thought right. there should be more, less stuff in the songs and, and so mm. where they wanted to keep on adding and adding more. And of course, um, XTC band leader, Andy Partridge is... Of the Partridge family? Of the Partridge family is a bit of a control freak. And so I think that also uh, kind of uh, affected how the, how the band developed. But... Let's listen to this song from maybe my favorite XTC album. This is uh, the album Black Sea that came out in 1980. And the song... Wait, wait, wait. Sorry. Hmm? Yes, dear. You like Black Sea better than Drums and Wires? I think so, yeah. Interesting. I like Drums and Wires a lot, but I think Drums and Wires still... I think in terms of songs, I think Black Sea is stronger. Hmm. Okay. It has genitals and majors. Yeah, but Drums and Wires has Helicopter. That's a good song. And Making yeah. Plans for Nigel. Oh, those are good. I mean, they're all good songs. Yeah. I said those are my three three favorite albums. No, I know, I know. I'm surprised. As well. <laughs> okay, sorry to shock you. No, just, you know. Yeah, I didn't, your hair turned white. Didn't expect that. Um, I just right. got one white hair, like gray hair. <laughs> one gray hair. This is uh, XTC. The song is Rocket from a Bottle from Black Sea. Here we go, everyone.
All right, and we're back. And Mary, yes, what do you think of Rocket from a Bottle? Um, fun. I like XTC. Pretty exhilarating. This yes, song, I think, it's it is really a propulsive song. Mm-hmm. Uh, pretty much the album. One of the other things I like about this album is that it's like a, it's like one of the best, like one of the great drum albums. Oh, okay. Terry Chambers, their drummer, is like is like doing so many great things in this album. It's just really great. So, and it, and it's it's uh, produced in a way that really highlights the drumming as well, which I I uh, like a lot. So. So for Black Sea, like Black Sea came after Drums and Wires, which was which was XTC's breakthrough. Like their first Drums couple albums, their first album White Music and then Go To after that were were very herky jerk, very much kind of new wave in a way that was, you know, kind of like um kind of just had like sort of like in your face new wave characteristics, you know, with a lot of like angular guitar sounds and stuff like that. Oh, okay. And I think Colin Molding the bassist felt that up was a little tiresome and he wasn't really he thought it was a bit too too gimmicky so he didn't really like it very much and so it was his song making plans for nigel which really propelled the band into like the next yeah you know like whoa these guys are yeah i think making plans for nigel is definitely their best known song oh for sure like yeah yeah. that's the song people know of theirs Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and yeah and it propelled them into actual popularity like Mm. before they were just kind of like a cult 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 right And like, you know, and but but suddenly becoming popular, you know, it has its good and bad sides. You know, one, you're popular. That's good. Yes. You know, you're making money. You're making money from your playing. Supposedly making money. Of course, you right. have a, you have a manager. He's yes. making money. Yeah. You're doing okay. But there's a bad side, which is that suddenly now the record company is interested in you. Yes. Before they did, they couldn't care less. Yeah. Your last album was so they were so indifferent to your last album. Your cover was like some leftover weirdo idea from hypnosis. The <laughs> <laughs> the famous, you know, record cover design company, but it obviously was like the the cover was not an XTC cover. It was just right. like some meta project that some guy had dreamed up at Hypnosis, and they just kind of, you know, fobbed off right, onto XTC. Threw it off. They were like, "Hey, we've got this. We're not using it." Yeah. And they were like, "Okay." Yeah. <laughs> and XTC are probably like, "Okay." <laughs> I guess. They were like, "Yeah, we have no budget for your for your album cover, yeah, yeah. but we did find this in the basement." <laughs> It's like I pulled this out of out of the garbage can. Yeah, yeah. Whereas, like the cover for Drums and Wires is like this, like, like an amazing XTC logo. Yes, you know, it has the face from yeah. the XTC is incorporated. It's a brilliant piece of design, and the cover for Black Sea has them all in like um, in deep sea diving gear, sitting on the cover, sitting like you know. So it's got this like really expensive, you know, obviously costs money to like put together this thing. And when I bought it, when you bought the first few. Um, whatever thousand records or whatever, it came in a black bag with it was like oh, okay, s- like sealed on the top, like heat sealed on the top. That said, black uh, uh, XTC Black Sea on it. Now I remember it as a black bag, but I was reading uh, when I was reading about it, it said it came in a green bag. But I I don't know. I wish I'd kept the bag. I kept it for a long time. I just kept it folded up and tucked into the record, but. It was so bulky that eventually I just thought it was probably not very safe for my records to have like this kind of bulky thing pressing against them that it may cause them right. to warp. So, and it was also because I was <clears throat> I was a dumb kid, mm-hmm. and so I just like tore it open. I didn't cut it carefully oh, or anything. Yeah. I just like ripped it apart in order right. to get the record out. And so it was like it wasn't like it was in like like unlike my Led Zeppelin album In Through the Outdoor, which has like still has the pristine paper cover that came with it right i still have that because it was easy to keep that in good shape mm-hmm. it was just like hard to do anything with this big giant black sea bag so i yeah i think i threw it away like a dum-dum oh, it's too bad it's like me looking at all my um my 
book jackets yeah. that I have that are just like squashed flat because I can't read a book with a jacket on it. So I take them off and then just yeah. toss them with all my other ones. <laughs> and they're just like flat as pancakes, like all squished down. Well, at least they're compact. Yeah, I guess so. And I just like never put them back on. Ugh. Silly. Ugh. <laughs> but this is the <clears throat> album. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think we I, talked about it before. We talked about it before because yeah. I played, um, I played the song, um, I played a song from that album. <laughs> what is that song called now, everyone? Not, not that, not that, not that, not that. Anyway, I played a song from that album. Man. Which one? Um, do, 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 do. Battery Brides. Nope. Buzz City Talk. No, d- don't tell me. Do, 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 do. Are you receiving me? Yeah, that song. Are you receiving me from that album? Yeah, I played that on a, on a, uh, yeah i and so i actually included a picture i took some photos of the original yes. cover and put them on the yeah. on the on the page so people could see what we were talking about because it is it is a, you know it is a i think it's cool it's a cool and fun cover i just it's just kind of funny to me because it obviously it's not an xtc cover no yeah it's just it's just a real like could be used with anyone it could have been on yes. it could have been used for egg yeah you know like no it doesn't really matter what egg <laughs> but you know what i mean right yeah i know what you mean <laughs> so yeah so so Virgin, you know, the Virgin Records executives started paying attention to the band. Most, most importantly, were paying attention to Colin Moulding, who had written the band's hit song. And so they were pressing him to, like, write another hit song. But that made band leader Andy Partridge feel like he was losing control of, quote-unquote, his band. And so attempting to wrest control back from his usurper, (laughs) <laughs> Partridge bullied the rest of the band into recording his song to prove that he could write a chart hit too. And so they were they worked with Seems this, healthy. They worked with this producer named Phil Wayneman, who is known for his work with Bay City Rollers, which Mary, I know you don't know who Bay City Rollers are, and that is okay. But but when I was growing up they I've were heard of them. They were a very popular band. They um they were a very popular band with they were like a boy band, basically, of their time. Right. And so uh, the band recorded this a song by Partridge called Wait Till Your Boat Goes Down. And he considered it the group's Hey Jude and expected it would <laughs> propel the group oh, to no. massive success. Oh. Instead, oh. it was the band's lowest selling single to date. Oh, oh Andy. <laughs> Poor Andy. <laughs> so, so yes. So that didn't go exactly as planned. No. And then he wanted the band self-produced the, al- the next album, but Virgin wouldn't I go like for it. that, of course. Because I always like it when bands are like... This is going to be our track by the Beatles. You know, like, is it? Is it? Are you sure about that? Do you want to take a step back and maybe consider I'm that? Sh- I'm sure that he looks back on that with a certain amount of ironic uh, amusement. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, he's kind of a funny guy. Um, a lot. I think, I think you kind of have to be to be a, the leader of a very successful band. I, I guess. A lot of them are, but I think eccentric. I think a band like well, yeah, but I think a band like XCC needed to be a band because that's what they were. They're a band. Like I think being a band leader, you have to remember that you're not the most important part of the band. Well, if they were to remember that, they wouldn't be the band leader. <laughs> they would just be a member of the band. Well, yeah, but they are. Right. They are a member of the band. No, they're the band leader. But they're a member of the band. Well, are they? <laughs> exactly. That's a problem, right? <laughs> because they're writing most of the songs. Mm-hmm. They're the band leader. They are. Unless there's another member of the band who's writing the hit songs. Well, they're just a band member, though. They're not the band leader. It's not all, it's not all about them, but it is all about me, the band leader. So, 
Yeah, so Virgin said no, probably recognizing Andy Partridge's personality is not mm-hmm. the best person to like put be put in charge of any sort of uh, of the band and, and having to put together a record. Yeah. So, uh, like the preceding album, Drums and Wires, Black Sea, was recorded at the Townhouse Studio, which was owned by Virgin Records. It was located in London with producer Steve Lillywhite, mm-hmm. who we know very well. Yes, we do. And engineer Hugh Padham uh, back in the control room. So they came back to... Now, the Townhouse was a studio... And it was known for this room, and it called the Stone Room, which was a room that was completely made of stone walls. Hmm. And it was a super popular place to record in the 1980s because it was the home, Mary. It was the the birthplace of the gated snare. Oh. That's where it started. Hugh Padham. Oh. Okay. Working with uh, with Phil Collins mm-hmm. on his album, uh, I can't remember what called, it, Face Value, I think it was called. And there's a song in there called In the Air Tonight, and was recorded at the, the uh, at the t- uh, townhouse as well and Padham Lily White and Collins together created this sound called uh what they called the the gated snare and the reason they invented it dear is kind of interesting okay because Lily White and Padham produced this album for Peter Gabriel which like the preceding albums by Peter Gabriel is called Peter Gabriel. It's so annoying. Known as the face melting album because it has a picture of Peter Gabriel on the cover and half of his face is melting down. And it's like a drawing. Oh, okay. And half of it is like smeared in some way that looks like his face is melting. Right. So it's called the face melting album because, right. because you can't call every... Because he chose not to give it a, a distinctive well, name. Well, it was the third album that had Peter Gabriel as yeah. the title. Like, come on, guys. It's not... Which one is it? Is it... Uh, car window with with rain on it, or is it face melting? I can't remember the first one. The first one's like I think like a design or something. Okay. Right. But actually, um, yeah. So one of the th- one of the things he asked on the for the album was that the drummers not use their cymbals to record. And so Phil Collins, who played in Genesis w- with um, with Peter Peter Gabriel, he was he was on was guested on the album as a drummer. Okay. And and then another guy named Jerry Moroda, who played with uh, Steely Dan, like did session work with Steely Dan. He also played on it. And apparently Moroda found it much harder to to forego the cymbals as he was playing than, oh, than yeah. Collins did. But that's what Peter Gabriel wanted. And so and to sort of like make give the uh drums a sort of a different sound to it. Mm-hmm. That's when Padham and Lily White started to develop like a, a compressed snare drum Ugh. snare drum sound to create and then add reverb to it to give right. this this echo. Yeah. Because they they wanted to they wanted to imitate. Whoops. Sorry, I missed. <laughs> because they wanted to. Uh, because they wanted to imitate the 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 symbol in a way, like just kind right. of give it a different sound to kind of help help with the textures for for the drummers. Mm-hmm. Mary, just so you know, mm-hmm. from Peter Gabriel's third album, known as Face Melting Album. Yes. Is a song called Games Without Frontiers. The second. Oh, sorry. The third single I ever bought. Oh, really? Yeah. What was the first single you ever bought? The first single I ever bought was "Don't Stand So Close," to, "Don't Stand So Close to Me" by the Police. Uh-huh. Second, mm-hmm. "Generals and Majors" by XTC. Mm-hmm. Third, "Games Without Frontiers." Cool. Yeah, there you go. What about after that? I think the fourth one I bought was "Little Red Corvette." No, sorry, "Delirious" by Prince. Oh, okay. That was my fourth one. Cool. I didn't buy very many singles though, because I, I thought they were a bit of a ripoff compared to records. That's fair. Because they 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 cost like. It cost like the third of the price of a record. Right. But you only got two songs and one of them was often not that great. Yeah. Because this is a B-side. Mm-hmm. So you're like, mm, okay. Prince gave you good value. I'll say that for him. Oh, yeah. Give you good value. More? Just the, More songs. The, the B-side was almost uh, always, 
almost always as good as oh that's that's nice or al- almost as good as the the, the side. side yeah like he didn't he didn't try to like create it so that because quite often the theory to a b side is that you don't want the djs to flip the single and start playing the b side oh yeah and that can like confuse the the the, charts or whatever yeah well can confuse the public confuse the buying people and then also it can yeah it can affect the charts as well because then you have two songs by the by the same artist right and so then it divides the airplay and yeah it it sinks the sinks the song Hmm. well yeah it's like trying to it's like putting out two albums in one year yeah by one by one band right people buy both rather than just buying one and then you end up ranking half or well, people Or people choose one over the other. Yeah, they yeah that's what I'm saying. They can't afford, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And yeah. Like one thing, this is maybe not 100% Rele- relevant. Okay, that's fine. Maybe, but... I'll, I'll, um, I'll edit it out you'll, if it's you'll, you'll allow it, potentially. No, no. I'll, I'll, I'll listen to you now. Oh. But if I don't like it, it's going to be gone. Well, that's harsh. So everyone, if there's like a sudden switch to a different topic, you'll know oh. what happened. Go in there. My so my topic wasn't good enough. All right, I see what we're, see what we're doing here. Uh, what I was going to say yes, is when they rank um, like names for kids, well, like baby names. Yeah. Um, like when the social social on that like social security does it, they do like a ranking. Yeah. But one thing that they don't take into consideration is different spellings for names. Oh, okay. Right. So like Sophia with a ph mm. versus Sophia with an f. Yeah. Um. They rank as two different they names. They rank as two different names, right? Mm-hmm. Or like... Um, David with a Q mm-hmm. or David with this D-A-V-I-D. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, we're like Lily with two L's versus Lily with one L or like Maddie with an I-E versus yeah. Maddie with a Y, right? For sure, for sure. Like they rank them differently. So then you end up with uh, different, like probably lower rankings for them where it's like, oh, well... Or like Megan. When I was in high school, we had th- in my French immersion block we had three different megans but they all their names were spelled differently huh yeah yeah because we had a m-e-g-a-n yeah m-e-g-h-a-n yeah and m-e-a-g-a-n m-e-a-g-a-n yeah megan yeah all pronounced megan yeah i guess ronald reagan yeah megan megan it works yeah uh you'll allow it <laughs> I'm, I'm going to allow that mary because i made a joke in it oh so I'm gonna I'm gonna keep that so, in the show. So my 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 bit there yeah. was dependent on you participating. Exactly. So yeah. if you had chosen not to participate, you would have cut it. If I couldn't have thought of a, a good joke, uh-huh. yeah, I would have taken it out of the show. Mm. Pretty rude. Lucky for you. Yeah. I made a, I made a, I cracked a funny. Yeah. Thanks for that. That amused me. Thanks for doing that. <laughs> no problem. Appreciate it. <laughs> no, no problem at all. <laughs> so. Oh, yeah. So Lily White and Padam came back, partly because Phil Wayneman, who produced Wait, Wait Till Your Boat Goes Down, that song didn't work. So, of course, that, you know, made the, made the producer wrong rather than the song. They also uh, had worked with a band recording a song called Take This Town, which was used in uh, a soundtrack for a film called Times Square. Now, during... Now, I was reading somewhere that Partridge imposed a rule during recording that no overdubs should be recorded that could not be performed live, which I thought was interesting. But so this, plus the fact that the band had just spent 18 months touring the world, uh, performing drums and wires, resulted in a, a simpler, less elaborate sound than their previous albums. And maybe that's why I like this album a little bit more than drums and wires. I feel like I do like that drums and wires a lot but i feel like the a lot of the songs are still have a bit of quirkiness to them okay whereas this this album is very much more kind of straight ahead rock and roll right what i think is ironic given that uh, partridge is a rule preserving the faithfulness of the live sound is that he would because he um 
he would like for instance he would choose when he was when they were like kind of divvying out the guitar parts in a song mm -hmm. if he was singing the song he would choose the simpler guitar part to play that way he would wouldn't have any trouble with it when he was playing performing right. live but what's ironic to me is that he would soon refuse to tour any longer turning in the group into a what i think a less successful studio band hmm. so now I know I've given this theory before, and I'm going to say it again, and it's a little bit mean to Andrew Partridge, but I feel that Andrew Partridge is a control freak. Okay. And one, one of the ways of controlling people for him, particularly when he was losing control of the band as a live act, because people were cheering more for songs that weren't by him, mm. was to... I mean, it's no it's no, there's no denying that they were, they were touring a lot. Yes. Like they were over-touring. Right. When they, when they're, you know, and that's not, that's the fault of management. That's not anyone else's fault. Yeah. You know, and so I think, I think, you know, management, I think their manager's name is Ian Reed. And I think he, he was, you know, your typical manager. He was all about the money in his pocket. Right. You know, and so money in his pocket was the band touring. Mm -hmm. Him getting, you know, the receipts for, for the band touring the world. And so, you know, like they, they record they, they they did drums and wires. Yep. They toured the world. Mm -hmm. They came back. Mm -hmm. They immediately started recording Black Sea. Yep. And that, well, that's the reason. And the reason that on the cover of Black Sea, they're they're wearing deep deep um, deep sea diving suits, isn't because the album was called Black Sea. It was right. actually going to be called Under Pressure. Oh, okay. But Ian Reid felt that was an insult that they were, that they were commenting on his you know, the fact that he was keeping them working so hard. Oh. And so he didn't want them to use that title, and so they changed it to Black Sea. Hmm. Under still Pressure. still had, like, a nautical... Right. Under Pressure would be a good name for an album. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think... Isn't that the name of a, a song by Queen? I don't think it's the name of their album, though, but it is a song by Queen. I don't know. The one that goes, do-do-do-do-do-do, do-do-do-do-do-do-do. Why are you looking at that? I'm trying to think of the name of that song. Under Pressure. Is it Under Pressure? Yeah. Okay. Under Pressure. I think they did it with uh, David Bowie. Anyway. But would that have preceded this album? I don't think so. I think it was like 83 Under Pressure. Hmm. I might be bumping it ahead a little little farther than it was, but I'm pretty sure it came... It was it was after 1980 anyway. Right. 1981. 81. Damn. Yeah. I was going to say 81. And then so I, I wonder if that contributed to the change in name as well. I don't think so. You don't think so? No, because they, they would have been... They would have had the album completed and in stores before Under Pressure even appeared in the in the world. Isn't it Under Seas 82? Black Sea? Or Black Sea, isn't it Black Sea 82? No, no, it's uh, 1980. Oh, yeah. I thought it was 82. No, no. 82 would be, um, I guess Mummer would be 82. Mm, English Settlement. English Settlement's 82? Mm -hmm. I was in grade 10 when English Settlement came out. Okay. They took a break. Mm -hmm. That's a double album. So I guess that they could have two, uh, two a year yeah. off to do it. <laughs> Although here in fair. North America, it was only released as a single album. Oh, really? Yeah, I never heard it as a double album until I was much older, and I, I finally found an import copy of the of the, uh, the original double. Oh, interesting. I bought that. But and did the first side, or the, the the first album have Senses working overtime on it? Yes. Okay, that was their, of course. That was the single, and that's an yeah. undeparted song. Like, he did get... He did, oh, yeah, that's good. Um, yeah, it had... Uh, but, yeah. I know... Oh, sorry. What were you going to say? No, nothing. Oh, I was just going to say, um, I know that I say this a lot, yeah. but he sounds like someone who could have benefited from counseling. Eddie Partridge? Yes. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a film, I think it's called This Is Pop. It's about XTC. It's a documentary oh, okay. about XTC and it's quite good. But the only person they talk to from XTC, I th uh, mostly is Andrew Partridge. So it's oh, really okay. just his view of the history of the band. And right. I think Colin Moulding does not appear in it at all. Hmm. You know, and Terry Chambers talks a little bit. 
I think they talked to Barry Andrews very briefly. He was the first keyboardist. Dave Gregory talks a little bit in it, but it's basically Andrew Partridge's view of the band, and I, I think that's how he would want it. You know, like he's he's the kind of the de facto spokesperson for the group. Hmm. But I noticed recently that Colin Moulding and Terry Chambers, the drummer, are performing live again and are talking about doing an album. So oh, that's, cool. that's pretty exciting. And people, of course, people asked, um, "Is are you going to reform XTC?" And they're very diplomatic. Right. Because that's not going to happen. Yes. I think there was a major falling out between uh, Colin Moulding and, and Andy Partridge after they did um, Wasp Star. Oh, yeah. Their final album. Yeah. I mean, I think I think for me, it would be hard to be in a band with someone who was constantly devaluing my contributions that were making <laughs> us famous, you know? Well, that, yeah. And I mean, Dave Gregory, who was brought in for On Drums and Wires as, as their new guitar player when Barry Andrews left, like he is... Um, I mean, Andrew Partridge has said, he described himself as a benevolent dictator in the group. And Dave Gregory said, well, he was more of a bit of a bully. Yeah. And he said he was, and he was very hard to... He was more of a Stephen Stills type. Yeah. yeah. It was very hard to work on his songs. Mm. Or, um... He's, he said he's not Lee very Mavers. giving. Lee Mavers. Lee Mavers. Is he bad? Does it, it feels like Lee Mavers was very... Particular? Particular in a very in a very controlling and very yeah. self damaging way, but I don't know if he was a bully. But it doesn't feel like he was a bad bandmate because those guys played together for a long time yeah. as as the laws. And a lot of them did side with him yeah. against the, the label and against yeah. like Steve Lillywhite and the other producers. Yeah. In like we don't accept this as um, an album. They were wrong. They were wrong because it's a fantastic album. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> they were wrong. I mean maybe it could have been better, but who cares? Who cares? Yeah. When you put out something that great, like yeah, 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 yeah it's uh, it's I feel yeah, I just I think it's just too bad. Like uh, I remember XTC, I remember an ad in the paper, um, advertising their their purported world tour for English Settlement. Mm-hmm. It had that chalk horse. Yes, uh, on the album from the album cover. Yeah, yeah. on the ad, and I, I was so excited. It was going to be at the Commodore here in Vancouver, which is a licensed. Uh, Venue? Venue, so I couldn't have actually gone in grade 10. But I had great plans of sneaking in to see them. And and then it was cancelled, of course, because Andrew Partridge decided that they would never tour again. Oh, so you never and saw them? I never got to see them. Oh, that's sad. I wouldn't have got to see them anyway, folks, because... You were, let's like, face 15. It, I was, yeah, I was in grade 10, apparently. I didn't realize. I thought it was in grade 9 when it came out, but apparently it was grade 10. Hmm. That's fine. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah, I remember... And I remember my excitement when Mummer was coming out, because there was a... There was a record store in Vancouver called Odyssey Imports, and they would write, they had a chalkboard in their store, and they would write upcoming albums right. by popular bands, and yeah. they would write the date of its release. And one of those was Mummer, mm-hmm. that XCC's next album after English Settlement. And I was so excited that the album was coming out. Yeah. So excited. And then I got it, and it was so disappointing. Oh. It, was such a, it was such a sea change from the, right. from the last, the, from English Settlement and the, the previous three albums. It was way less guitar-oriented. Oh, okay. It became more about like using Mellotron and, and synthesizers and stuff like right. that. There's a couple of acoustic songs on there, hmm. like Love on a Farm Boy's Wages and stuff. But a lot of the songs are very keyboard-heavy. Right. And uh, I'm not a, not a keyboard fan. You know, I like it in bits and pieces. You know, like I'm I'm excited about this new Sofian Stevens album, mm-hmm. but apparently it's very synth heavy. Yeah. So I'm a little bit like mm, not sure. Yeah. But we'll see. Oh, um, speaking of new <clears throat> Sofian Stevens album. Yes. This is slightly related. Sure. There's a new Sloan single out. Yes, Trumps something lies. One of that. Yeah. Something Trumps lies. Yeah. Or yeah, yeah. Or something. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I've not yet listened to it, but I got okay. 
a notification from Spotify. Okay, cool. I was like, hey, new single. I guess I'll have to uh, go on Bandcamp and get it. Yeah. Unless I can find a physical copy of it, but probably not. Probably not. I mean, it's a, it's a single and it's 2020. <laughs> you know what I was thinking about the other day? What's I that? really miss HMV. Yeah. 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 Well, I miss HMV. I miss, miss Virgin Megastore being in, in Vancouver. I don't remember that. Uh, yeah, it was right by, um, where I worked at, uh, Hotel Vancouver. Oh, okay. And there was like, it was a two stories, it was a two floor store. Oh. It's actually three stores, oh. three stories. No, cause there, I'm thinking of the big, there was a big HMV on, um, Robson, right? Okay. They, they, they moved into where the, uh, where a Virgin Megastore was. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. they kind of kept in the same spirit, but Virgin was really good because they had a lot of inter- they had a lot of international stuff. That's, that's cool. That's why I got my Usmatanches and Catano Veloso cool. collections and stuff. Right, it was their Brazilian section in in Virgin Megastore. Yeah. And then whenever I saw a new one, I would buy it. You know, right. When I didn't have, oh, I'll take that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm totally. I'm, well, I just I just miss the experience of like shopping for like through physical media. Well, this of a of a non curated exploration of music you know mm. like almost everything we do now is curated in some way right it's all based on your algorithm based on your algorithms yeah. and so it's so hard to it's hard to accidentally discover something mm-hmm. you know even now like you know i, I hear a lot of music th- because uh you know like through uncut magazine or through right. mojo magazine but even that is curated oh, yeah. through their particular prism of what they like mm-hmm. the, the editors and stuff and people who work there like, yeah like uncut they're like oh this song's an americana song guess it's going on exactly <laughs> although that's become less of a thing because alan jones the original editor has has retired oh okay so th- so there's a different there's a different mindset at work right. different editor at work so you have a different uh, aesthetic but there still is a strong americana streak to uncut magazine for yeah. sure I mean, like, I think the first one I bought was, like, had, like, the band on the cover. Right. And for, ever since then, you know, it's just been like, oh, that's their thing. Yeah. <laughs> and Mojo is a bit different, but they still have, like, a strong... Uh, and they they do less kind of uh, best of the... Yeah, they do less best of the month, right? They do more, like, themed ones. Yeah, or, that's right, um, yeah, yeah. Or, like, getting someone in to be like, here's some of my favorites yeah, or whatever. they'll do that, or they'll do, like, uh, reproductions of albums. So they'll right. do, like... Uh, a cover of Revolver songs, right? Know, or a cover of of uh, Bruce Springsteen yeah, songs. Yeah, there's a yeah. There's I've well, I have a few like Sufjan, um, co- Sufjan's covers of other songs yeah, that have been yeah. on things. Yeah. Like there's his song of Free Man on Paris, which I think was on Free Man in Paris. Yeah, sorry, Free Man in Paris, which I think was on like The Bird Has Flown or something, which was like a Joni Mitchell. Mm. Um, cover. No, the bird has flown. This bird has flown is a Beatles one. Cause oh, he, he does a Beatles song as well, right? Which Beatles song does he do? It's like a weird one. Yeah, it's like it is. I think it's from Rubber Soul. I can't remember either. I'm. I want to say like it's not. I'm looking through you, right? I don't know. Anyway, does it matter, everyone? Does it matter? We <laughs> really care. Uh, well, we're looking into this, folks. Let's move to our next song. Yeah, what's our next song, Dad? This song is uh, by the band. is called Dry Ice. The song's called Running to the Convent from a single that came out on the B and C label in 1969. This is Running to the Convent. Here we go. Please don't 
right, we're back, everyone. And Mary, yes. Do you have any thoughts, feelings, expressions? Oh, wait a second. I just got to write "keeper" beside a beside a rocket from a bottle. Oh, I just wanted to say before we before we get off the the XCC thing, I just want to say one last thing. I think we're there, but okay. But because I, I mentioned it, but I just want to point yes. out one last time. Yep. Terry Chambers record. Like the drums are so the drumming is so great on that song. They're just so propulsive, and the right. ba- the bass playing yes. also is just fantastic. Yeah. Uh, Colin Mulling's bass playing is just mm-hmm. great. But anyway. XTC is a really specific sound that I enjoy as yeah, well. Yeah. It's like when you hear it, you're like, oh, this is an XTC song. <laughs> you just know. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. I'm glad that you enjoyed it. All right. So what do you think of Dry Eyes? Uh, I thought it was fun as well. Oh, good. I liked it. Good. Keeper. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's it's a One of the things I like about this song is I find it really interesting when there's kind of like the style of of songs where it's acoustic guitar but it's played as if it was like an electric guitar. Do you know what I mean? Like it's a really propulsive acoustic sound in a song. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, it's, I I don't know. I've always found that really interesting. There's a song by the who, Oh, you know, Oh, it doesn't matter. There's a song by the who called, um, there's a song by the who it's called, um, I'm free from the album, Tommy. I'm sure lots of people out there know it. And I, the thing I love about that song is that when I think about it, when I'm not like hearing it, when I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking, oh man, that is such a, like a, such a hard rocking song. It's got this real like, doo, 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 doo. man, that's just like so hard rocking. And then I play it, I'm like, oh, it's actually basically acoustic instruments playing this song. There's like a, there is an electric guitar in it, but it's not really a prominent part of the song. It's more the piano that's prominent. And it feels really kind of weird because it's like, it's like acoustic instruments playing like a rock song mm-hmm. in a rocking way. And it's like not in a folk, folk way or whatever, but like in a, it's just, it's just interesting to me. I really find it appealing. Uh, and that's, um, and that, that's kind of why I, that's kind of why I included it. It's also that I like the song a lot. Dry Ice, they were an actual band. They started in the mid sixties as kind of a mod band. Okay. And playing around and like many sixties bands that we've, we've talked about on the show, you know, there's, they, you, you knock around for a while and then, you know, at some point in your career, after you've added and shed many members, mm-hmm. you finally get the, your chance. So, so they started in the mid sixties as the select, very mod name, you know, implying being better than everyone else. Right. Right. Immediately puts you into the mod group. right? Yes. The high numbers, you know, whatever. They recorded for a legendary producer, Joe Meek, who is like this famous uh, eccentric English producer who recorded in his apartment recorded full bands in his apartment really yeah oh wow yeah yeah sad story but but a, but a, a crazy great uh producer cool and typical of crazy great producers he fired the band's drummer in uh during a, a temper in a tantrum fit of rage yes just over nothing <laughs> so they had to be, get a new drummer and so that new drummer became kind of like the mainstay with the original band original, original guitar player lineup. this guy named oh, paul, okay. paul gardner he was like the he was the original guitar player in the cool. select and then Terry Sullivan, uh, the drummer, joined uh, after the original drummer got got canned by Joe Meek. And then they changed the name later on to Jack's Union, still kind of a mod name, you know, mm-hmm. Union Jack, a very popular part of mod regalia was to have the... Do you know mod music at all, Mary? Do you know what no, that is about? Okay. Not really. So it was a scene in England that kind of revolved around Motown and, 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 and soul music. Oh, okay. And it was basically like a late night scene, so kids would, you know... Uh, go out to clubs and they would dance to 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 soul music and stuff like that. And so, British bands started to add, you know, started doing these songs live and you know, right. doing them kind of more excited way. That's how the Who started, for instance. Like their okay. first album, My Generation, the Who plays My Generation. Their first album, you know, has 
originals, but also has covers of, of songs that they like, they played in their, in their stage act. And so part of the scene was like, uh, really straight, tight jeans. I remember watching the movie Quadrophenia, which is based on the Who album, which is kind of like a nostalgic look back at the, at mods. And there's a scene in the movie where the, the act, the character the act, played by the actor, Phil Daniels, he, he like soaks his jeans so oh, okay. they're super wet and then, and then puts, puts them, them on, on right. yeah so they'll dry like tight. Skin tight yeah they'll dry skin tight Ugh. and then they wore like uh parkas but they were they were um british army parkas oh, so they're okay, these yeah. green parkas right. and then a lot of them drove scooters like vespa or lambretta scooters and then as Sick. part as part of that was to like add a bunch of like mirrors and stuff to them to make them to like kind of trick them out so unlike say hot rodders but kind of like hot rodders in california who would like take an old model t and chop it and, and lower it and do all that kind of stuff. You know, right. Take off the trunk, take off the, the hood, and then so expose the engine that you then would have chromed and right. all that kind of stuff. That these guys would like be adding mirrors, uh, mirrors and things to, to in, and yeah. longer antennas with, with things dangling in front right. of it. And right. That kind of stuff is part Steampunk. of their Steampunk. Part of their fun, right? Part of yeah. the fun of it. And so, yeah, so that was the mod scene. So it lasted, you know, quite a while. But as, as, as England. It, it kind of like morphed out of the mod scene kind of into something that's called freak beat, which is kind of a combination of both of them, which is kind of like a, a kind of drug fueled kind of a high energy rock and roll. And then that went into psychedelia. Right. So as, as you know, as monsters, the, the, the unions, they were like, you know, they're encouraged by their manager to get wild on stage, kind of like the who, right. So, or the move where her bands that did like auto destruction. So, you know, during during shows, Pete Townsend would smash his guitar. Right. They'd break amplifiers. Yeah. They'd destroy the drum kit. Bite the head off a bat. I think you're thinking of Ozzy Osbourne. That's much later. <laughs> the that's what, he, that's what he said. I'm rabid for heavy metal. <laughs> Chomp. <laughs> so uh, then the move, like they would have, like they would bring a car on stage and smash it up as part of their act. Mm. And so so the Weird. the the, the uh, Jacks Union also participated in that kind of stuff while their manager encouraged them to right until the bill started coming in for yes. all this destroyed yep. things on stage stuff like that and then he he left really quickly right uh so then as the monsoon receded and psychedelia became all the rage the band changed its name to dry ice and uh and they also changed their name to escape the bills possibly <laughs> not saying oh, pull in collar <laughs> They're like everyone's like, hey, where'd that where'd that band go? They're like, what what what, what band? Jack's Union? Do you know? I, I don't know. We're Dry Ice. We don't know them. <laughs> That's right. Why would you mistake us for them? Like you look really similar. Oh you're no, like I the think same you're mixed type up. Of music. I think that guy you're thinking of. He didn't have a mustache like my mustache. <laughs> so can't you see my my Grocho Marx glasses, nose, and mustache? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I can see them. I'm just not believing them. <laughs> So, so Dry Ice went through three different incarnations. Okay. And this is the third? And this is the third incarnation, the yes. third and final incarnation of the group. Like a butterfly. Yes. Emerging from its chrysalis. <laughs> That's right. Well... With a lot of dead. With a lot of... Well, no. And no manager. <laughs> no no manager. That's true. But so they they got booked to play this big gig at Royal Albert Hall in, okay. in London. And like a couple of weeks before the gig, their bass player quit, quit the group. Okay. And which is funny because his brother was the original bass player in the Ivies, which I thought was kind of funny. But he he left the Ivies because he uh, had a family he needed to uh, look after. Why this guy left the uh, the dryest, I don't know. He quit anyway. So the band had to do like this real like quick bass basses search. So they like had additions, and this bass player came to audition, but he brought his friend who was a guitar player with him. And so 
it ended up that the bass player was hired for the band. And they also hired the, his guitar player friend as well. And he became the lead guitar player in the right. group. And so they did this performance at Royal Albert Hall. And it so impressed this guy named Lee Gopthal, who was uh, the owner of two record labels. One was called BNC and the other was called Stable Records. So he gave the band a small inma- advance. But more importantly, he promised that he would, he would give the money to make an album. And so the band recorded that album. So like I was saying, it was Paul Gardner on guitar, Terry mm-hmm. Sullivan on drums. Mm-hmm. This guy named Jeff Novak, who is the vocalist. Okay. And then um, their new lead guitar player, a guy named Chris Hirenwicks, and then a guy named John Gibson on bass. And so they recorded the album at IBC Studios, which is a very famous, popular studio in, in London. Right. And But it was decided after they finished the album that there was no single on it that they could market. So hmm. Gardner was given the task of writing a sig- single. So he wrote the song in 10 minutes. Okay. Just sat down and like this quickly wrote it. wrote it out. Yeah. And he said he wrote it in about 10 minutes, inspired by a contemporary movie that featured two convicts who disguised themselves as nuns. But I'm not sure what movie that could have been. The only one I can think of is a movie that came out in the 80s called Nuns on the Run, which is about the same thing. It's about two convicts who disguise themselves as nuns. So I don't know if he was like, in his mind, he was mixing up. Like when people were interviewing about this in like later years, they're like, what, what made you write that song? He goes, oh, I was thinking about this movie with two nuns that were disguised, there were two convicts disguised as nuns. Right. And they're like, people are like, oh, okay. But yeah, it's interesting. I don't know... Uh, I don't know what else it could have been. But you know what, Mary? We talked about I'm Free. Yes. Uh, so I want to play you that song so that you can hear what I am what I meant about like a song that's like a rock song. That could, if you think about the song with electric guitars, it would it'd be like this crazy rock song. But instead, it isn't. It's piano, mostly. So let's give a listen to The Who playing I'm Free from their record career-making album, Tommy, from 1969. This is The Who.
right, so that was a a sweetly voiced Roger Daltrey singing "I'm Free" with with the who, with the, of course Pete Townsend on acoustic guitar, electric guitar, mm-hmm. piano, mm-hmm. and I was listening to that. You know, and I was also thinking, uh, "Pinball Wizard," I guess, also falls into that. It has that classic. The um, this song also kind of uses a similar chord chord sequence as as um, Pinball Pinball Wizard has that classic acoustic guitar at the beginning of it. I guess I could have used that song as an example, but. I'm actually a huge fan of I'm Free. But I was thinking, listening to it, what a great drummer Keith Moon is, but how weak those drums sound after listening to the drums on uh, on Rocket in a Bottle. Hmm. Like, you, you almost wish... Well, I mean, the problem for The Who is they were produced by their manager, and he he was not an experienced producer. Right. Like, so he didn't really understand... Like, they were produced by Shell Tell Me at the beginning of their career, and then and then their manager took over the... the uh, the management, or the not the management, the the production, and I don't think he was quite as as adept at mic placement and engineering and all those sorts of things yeah. that Shell Tommy was. You could get a really like explosive sound for his bands and his productions. You know, he's the person who like produced the Kinks all day and all the night and stuff oh, like that. Oh yeah, yeah. Re- recorded the first creation songs and you know making time and stuff like that. He's like his 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 uh productions always have like an almost like to me overheated sound to them. Right. Like he's melting the microphones while the bands are playing. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a different skill set to be a manager and a producer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go to our fourth song mare, okay. which I am going to preemptively mark keeper before we even start playing. This is All right. This is Courtney Barnett. Seems a little preemptive, yeah, but Yeah, I'm doing it anyway. There we go, keeper. Uh, this is uh, Courtney Barnett mm-hmm. from her very first, well, not her very first release, but her very first kind of almost official release was called right. The Double EP, Yep, A Sea of Split Peas. It came out in 2013. Mm-hmm. And this song is a favorite of mine by her called Out of the Woodwork. Yeah, let's hear it. You sound excited. Do I? <laughs> let's go. <laughs>
Mayor. Yeah. Thoughts on Courtney Barnett's Out of the Woodwork. You're right. <laughs> I love this song. It's such a good song. Yeah. I love it so much. Why do you like it so much? Um, I think, well, I really like her singing. Mm-hmm. She has a very loose style, as I think of it. L-O-U-C-H-E. I started, I have no idea. I just It's just a term that I've somehow picked up. Okay. And what it means is like, to me, it's like kind of a very relaxed, almost drawling style. Yeah. As if the person's singing while they're laying in a, on a couch. Right. Right. You know, like it's such a relaxed sound. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, she just really has this kind of very, yeah, it's very different sort of vocal delivery. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I love the lyrics. Like, have you listened to the lyrics in this song much? Um, I guess. 
you <laughs> yes I, I know you're not to much of a lyrics person well i mean i do listen I to, to them. assume yeah i do listen to them a little bit but i don't i don't always like pay attention to them right all the that time. makes sense um but yeah like the lyrics for this yeah. i think are, are just really really interesting i think that they really um I think that they're quite vivid about what it's like to be dealing with someone who's very self-centered. Is that what the song's about? I think so. Okay. That's sort of how I interpret it. Stuff okay. like, um, yeah, do you know you're no good at listening, mm. but you're really good at saying everything on your mind? Or look over my shoulder when I talk to you, where's the mo- more important person in the room? <laughs> like that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it must be tiring trying so hard to look like you're not really trying at all. I guess if you're afraid of aiming too high, then you're not really going to have too far to fall. Yeah. yeah. Like that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just because you're older than me doesn't mean you have to be so condescending. Yeah. Like it's just, yeah, I think that it's pretty accurate. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think we've all dealt with people like that in our lives. Well, Mary, just so you know what, I'm looking over your shoulder. I'm not, I'm not looking for something more important. I'm just looking at the chickens. Oh yeah. Working, doing stuff outside. That's fair. You can't see them from where you're sitting. Yeah, I can. No, you can't. I can see them on this. No, I guess I'm just joking, right? I can see them. Don't get all real on me. I'm just saying, all you can see back there, oh, that window was a tree. <laughs> Window's too high up. Um, but yeah, and like the instrumentation in this song is so good. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was actually, this song, I loved it so much. It was probably in my top 10 at one point. Mm. I don't know if it still is. Yeah. I think for me, top 10 lists are very fluid. Of course. You know, they change all the time. Um, but before Duncan and I were dating, um, when we were just friends slash coworkers slash roommates, um, I made him a top 10 CD and this was one of the songs on it. Okay. Okay. And where did you hear it? I don't know. Huh. Curious. Yeah. No, I, I like, I like her quite a bit in this style. Yeah. I don't love all of her stuff. No, I don't like when she gets hard rocking. Yeah. I find, I'm not a huge fan of, of hard rock singing, uh, mm. women singing hard rock. I'm right. not even a fan of men singing hard rock that yeah. much. It's something I'm not like a huge fan of, so it really has to like kind of appeal to me in some way. But right. I much prefer, I, I don't mind if a song is hard rocking, mm-hmm. but I prefer the women's voice to be almost sort of disconnectedly floating above it. Right. And doing something that's a little bit different than the, that's what I prefer anyway. Uh, you know why it's called the double EP? Um, because it's a double EP? Well, kind of. It's a compilation of her previous two EPs that she oh. put out. She'd self-published? Um, self. Yeah, self-recorded Re- and, and released, yeah. Uh, one, the first one was called I've Got a Friend Called Emily Ferris. Mm-hmm. And the second one was called How to Carve a Carrot into a Rose. Mm. And, yeah. So, so, if people don't know, she's from Australia. She's from Sydney, Australia. Mm-hmm. And the reason you can tell that is that her middle name is Melba. Oh, which is uh, a type of toast. That, but it's, she's named after the famous Aust- opera singer, Australian oh. opera singer named Dame Dame Nellie Melba hmm. was her name, and so that was. So her parents must have known that she was going to be a singer. Yes, they must. Even have. before she did. Yeah. No, she's very. She's very smart. She's. Uh, she has her own. Uh, she has her own record company called Milk. Oh, cool. Milk Records, which which I guess she uses as a as a place for her merchandise and stuff like that. Um, yeah, she's very very driven, very creative person did you know that nelly melba that's not her her birth last name oh what was her last name um mitchell okay um but melba is a pseudonym from melbourne her hometown oh i see yeah huh yeah i wonder why she took a pseudonym maybe she, was, maybe she wasn't supposed to be a singer her parents weren't keen on that so she yeah, i don't know hit her name 
All right. Well, I don't really have a lot to say about Courtney Barnett because she's young and she's in the midst of a career. There's no ending, no end point in sight. No, she's just, I mean, she has done like a fair amount. I think she's pretty well known. I was a little sad to see that she had broken up with her girlfriend. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. That's sad. Because it started going out in 2012. Oh, wow. Poor Courtney Barnett. (laughs) But let's go on to your next song, everyone. We've played this band before. This is the Pernice Brothers or Pernice Brothers. I'm not sure how you pronounce their last name. And uh, it's from an album I love by them. I like all the, I love all their albums a lot, but for whatever reason, I went back to this album for this song. Uh, the, the song is, the album is called the, uh, the World Won't End. came out in 2000, Mary. Mm-hmm. And this song is called The Ballad of Bjornborg. And the reason this song is on here, well, one is because I love Joe Pernice's voice. Right. But also, I love the guitar figure in this song. I love it, how it opens, particularly. And so we're going to listen to The Ballad of Bjornborg, everyone. This is the Pernice Brothers.
Yes. Your thoughts on the Ballad of Bjorn Borg? Um, I liked it. Another keeper. Wow. Yeah. I thought the song was fun. Um, I liked, I like his voice. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I like, I like his voice, but I also like how he records his voice. Like he produces himself. And I like how he kind of gives like a shine. That's how I describe it. Like there's like a shimmer to the way his voice is. Like there's that kind of almost whispered element to it. Yeah. But even in the the guitar, and I particularly love the guitar in this song. I love the, the do, 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 do. I really Mm -hmm. like that uh, element to the song. And... I did look at the lyrics for this song. I'm not a huge lyric person, but I was right. curious why it was called the Ballad of Bjornborg. Okay. And as far as I can tell, mm-hmm. the connection to Bjornborg is tenuous at best. Okay. If not, I mean, to be honest, the lyrics to me were completely indecipherable. Right. They're almost like placeholder words that were just put in because they sounded good in the <laughs> with the tune. I mean, maybe that's what he does. <laughs> and that might be what he does. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the reasons I'm not a huge lyric person is I don't, uh, I got in trouble from a listener of com- completely Beatles their their iTunes review of the uh, recent iTunes review uh, was mad at me for saying that lyrics don't matter, and they they felt like I was I was dissing lyrics, mm. which I'm not. Lyrics have a place in a song. I'm more reacting against the idea that lyrics are the song, and that we should sit and and try and parse out what a song is about by listening to the lyrics. Most times, lyrics to me are practically incoherent. You know, they're just there in order. You know, and if you think the if you believe lyrics are important to the Beatles, yeah. then please to explain to please explain to me this lyric, lyrical couplet right now. Mm. My love, oh sorry, what is it? My love don't give me presents. My love, she ain't no peasant. Mm. Like this is nonsense. Yeah, it's just there, right, to get the song done. Yeah, that's what those lyrics are for. Right, you know, like the Beatles weren't killing themselves over the lyrics either. Like they were more interested in the music and the mm. feel of a song mm-hmm. than they were in. By the way, those weren't exact quote this but the the rhymes were correct right the you know like you know some like i think that like it was to the detriment of rock music when it became vital that it have some meaning to it mm. like even like stuff like bob dylan like everyone's making like such a huge fuss out of bob dylan lyrics right like he wrote them he wrote a song about being stuck in oatmeal <laughs> which is what i thought that song was called what i thought we were singing when i first heard but to be honest that is as meaningful as That's the song the thing. itself. Exactly. I mean, it makes as much sense as the, stuck inside of Mobile with the Memphis Blues again. Yeah, or someone who's stapling 20 pounds of headlines to his chest, or yeah. he punches a train engineer <laughs> uh, because he, uh, f- instead of lighting a cigarette or whatever, just all kinds of like nonsensical right. lyrics. The lyrics are nonsensical. They're like automatic writing that he was doing at the time, which he was inspired by like you know, surrealist poets and stuff like that who were writing in the turn of the, the century in France. Mm-hmm. And he was like adopting those that style into into songwriting. But he was doing it in a way that wasn't pretentious. He was just doing it in a way that was sort of fun and, and right. lively. And and sure, if you want to, if you want to pour over those lyrics and, and dredge all kinds of meaning out of them, mm-hmm. be my guest. That's what art's there for. But I don't think that you can rate a song as better or worse than another song because of the lyrics. Right. Like I and I never criticize a song because of its lyrical content, mm. and even if it's abhorrent lyrics, you know that might affect how I view a song. But it right. doesn't make me think that the song that the music's bad mm. in the song. You know, there's lots of rap songs out there that have that say terrible things. Right? Do you think that you would enjoy a song as much if it didn't have lyrics, or if the lyrics were just like la 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 the whole time? Well. I mean, okay, let me just w- walk it back a little bit. Mm-hmm. If a song was like 
really terrible about women mm. or really terrible, you know, recommended like child rape or something mm-hmm. like that. Of course, I would hate that as, yes. as a song. That would that would just not be playable to me. But what I mean is that if it's like, you know, if the lyrics are, if the lyrics are kind of misogynistic in a kind of rock and roll way, you know, and it's a lot of baby baby and a lot of, you know, right. my woman does, she doesn't cook very, very well. What's that song? Looking for a Love by Bobby Womack. Yeah. It's a great oh. song, but if you listen to the lyrics, it's, r- like, it's a ridiculous Bobby song. Bobby Womack, what are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> Bobby Womack's a guy from the 50s. Yeah. You know, his idea of what an ideal woman is is shaped by his times. Yeah. And I can't judge, I can't be a, a, a what's, what would be the word, chronological chauvinist. Right. And go back in time and criticize people for, for being part of their time. Mm. You know? Like, there's lots of people who wrote stuff that was terrible. Right. Without being consciously terrible themselves. You know, because they were just they're products just of the time. They're consuming what they were They're consuming told. and they're, yeah, yeah they're, just, they're, they're retelling their, their experiences mm-hmm. of that time period, you know? But yeah, so to your point... To uh, my question. To your, or to your question. Well, a song I love, Mary. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to sing it for you. Ready for the song? Manamana, do-do-do-do-do. Manamana, do-do-do-do. Manamana, do-do-do-do-do. So you don't think that having comprehensible lyrics or like lyrics that are actual words you yeah. don't think that changes the no, impact no, no not at all okay, for me interesting. i mean i love instrumentals and you're yeah. not i know you're not as big a fan of instrumentals but i i love instrumentals yeah i mean i'm like no judgment with that question i was just curious yeah. whether yeah, that yeah. would impact your no, enjoyment of it or not not at all hmm, that's interesting because i think for some people it would oh yeah like i mean your mom had a friend who told me that before she listened to a record she read the lyric sheet hmm. and if she didn't like the lyrics she wouldn't listen to the record right which i thought was complete nonsense right because that's not, I mean, what, that's not what music is. No, it's true. You're judging music like how you're trying to judge poetry. You're trying to judge a book, yeah. right? Like and if you open up a book and read a chapter yeah. and you don't like it, then that's valid. But if you open up a book and, or look at a book and look at the title or look at look at the cover and say, I don't really like the art on the cover. Yeah. I don't like how they drew that horse and don't read it because of that. <laughs> you're judging the book on... Yeah, not on its merits. Yeah, not on, on on something that it's not. Yeah, something that impacts it, but it's not the only thing that you well, should judge it. it by. Music is performative, mm-hmm. and that's where that's where it's important. Right. Reading lyrics on a page is not performative. Mm-hmm. You know, slam poetry is performative. Yeah. You wouldn't want to read slam poetry. No. You might enjoy it in a live setting where the person's there performing their their poetry for right. you. Right. But you don't want to sit in a room and read that in a book. Mm-hmm. It's not that it's not interesting. Yeah. Because what's interesting in that in that in that poetry is the performance, the performance, the moment yeah. that you're seeing it. Yeah. Or like trying to read, um, like a play, mm-hmm. or trying to read, like I I have tried to read, um, what's it called? Scripts. Yeah. Right for movies. Yeah. You have a couple printed out that you found in in the early internet days. Those I do. Were available on the internet, and they're just not very interesting. I spent three hours printing those things, and then yeah, I looked and I went, you know what? I don't really care about this. Yeah. I mean, I do have some books of scripts that I bought. Yeah. When I was, I have like some Woody Allen scripts. I think and stuff it's. Like that. I think it's. But those interesting. are different because they have jokes and stuff in them, and they're, and they're right. They're much more. They're written in a more kind of literary fashion. Like yeah. I have like Metropolitan and, and Barcelona scripts and stuff. Right. Like that. But I think I think that they're interesting in. The way that it's like, oh, this is how you write a script. Yeah. They're not interesting and you're reading it and you're like, oh, I'm really interested in what's going to happen next. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like, I wouldn't read a script for a movie that I'd never seen before and be like, oh, wow, this is really thrilling. I was, yeah, I printed out Pulp Fiction. Yes, that's the one that I was thinking of. More because I was interested in the changes that happened between the script and the film. Oh, okay. Because there were changes. Like, if you do read the script, there are are changes. Mm -hmm. And that's more what I was interested in. But I could have 
to be honest with you, I could have done that without printing it out on, onto right. you know, 100 pieces of paper. Yeah. And then uh, for some reason, hole punching it and putting yeah. it in a duotang. Yes, I did. <laughs> I wanted to save it. I printed it all out. Yeah, Why would I put it do. into a duotang? I, I know. I just like the idea of you like hole punching it like five pages at a time. Yeah, I did. <laughs> what's, what's, what's your point? Just, just uh, What's you your know, point, Mary? You seem to have a lot of time on your hands. <laughs> I didn't. You were, you were a little baby <laughs> I then. I was going to say. <laughs> I didn't have much time at all. I didn't have much time at all, but I was yeah. fascinated by this new thing called the internet. Yeah, that's fair. I would have been, yeah, 94. Mm. was when I first got a computer that I could go on the internet with. Wow. Not very well. It was a black and white yeah. Mac SE30. Yeah. It wasn't great. No. But, <laughs> but I could go on the internet. All right. Let's uh, let's move on. Oh, wait. I just wanted to say one thing about Bjorn Borg. Hey, sure. Not about the song. Yeah. Just about Bjorn Borg. The tennis player? Not about the tennis. Well, sort of. Okay. But the, my only uh, cultural reference for Bjorn Borg yeah. is an episode of BoJack Horseman. Okay. Where Diane dresses up as... Uh, baby Bjorn Borg. Okay. Where she's baby wearing a baby Bjorn. Yeah. And also has like a like a like a cyborg like a robot eye and a robot arm because she's like a cyborg and she's wearing a baby Bjorn. So she's baby Bjorn Borg. Okay, that's very complicated. Yeah, very that complicated. was that was pretty much everyone's reaction to her Halloween <laughs> costume at the party was that no one understood what she was. I feel like the Luke Wilson character in the Royal Tenenbaums is based on Bjorn Borg as well. Oh yeah. She was wearing one of those tennis player headbands the headband that is the, he wears in... Yeah. Um, in yeah, Bjornberg had long blonde hair and he oh, wore the headband okay. to keep it all in place. Okay, let's move on to our next song. This uh, next artist, everybody, is Richard Buckner. Wait, from, was Bjornberg also in love with his adopted sister? No. Oh, okay. Uh, it's okay. They're adopted. They're, it's adopted. Mm, it's not okay. You don't think so? No. So it's wrong. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So they shouldn't get together. No. Are you serious? I don't know. He loves her. Yeah, but they're, they're brother and sister. I guess that's right. It's kind of gross. Yeah, it's super gross. We're all tenon bones. Yeah. I don't think that that movie is like, I don't think, well, I don't think you're supposed to look at their relationship and be like, look at those healthy people in a healthy <laughs> no, relationship. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> that's part of that movie. No, no. No. <laughs> I think it's like, look at all these people with really bad coping mechanisms <laughs> and like codependency issues yeah. with, within their families. Because of their bad dad. Because of their bad dad, yeah. Hmm. And their bad mom. I guess, do you think the mom's bad too? I think so. And how so? I think that she pushed them too hard. I see. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I tried to create a little family of geniuses. Yeah. Like, I don't think that it's... I don't think it's good for kids. I don't think it's good for kids to be raised with a goal like that. Yeah. Like, I don't think it's good to, like, raise your kids and tell them, like, you are going to be... You have to be this. Yeah. You're going to be a tennis champion. Yeah, you're going to be a tennis champion or you're going to be a famous screenwriter yeah. or you're going to be, what, an inventor? Was that what the other guy was supposed to be? I think more I was a businessman. Businessman. Yeah. Yeah, like just... A classic entrepreneur. Yeah. You know, because yeah. then if you fall short of that, right? Like which if, they all do. Which they all do, of, of course, right? Because, you know, they're human. They make mistakes. And yeah. I think that you should raise children to be kids, not to be tiny little adults who are always stressed about having to achieve things. Yeah. I think you should also raise kids to know that it's okay to mess up sometimes. Well, I just want to apologize then, Mary, for mm -hmm. my part. Mm. making you and Eve, uh, uh -huh. training you guys from the age of three until yes. you were 17 as yep. circus clowns. Well, thanks, Dad. I'm glad that I finally got the goal of this podcast, which was to get an apology for that. <laughs> Can I take this face paint off now? <laughs> no. <laughs> what about these giant shoes? No, you it's really hard to drive with them. <laughs> and there's so many other people in that car. <laughs> Listen, you... Are they still in there with a ladder? <laughs> yeah. All right. 
So what's our next song, Dad? <laughs> our next song is uh, this is Richard Buckner. Honk, honk. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was just my nose. <laughs> <laughs> Careful with the microphone. Uh, this is Richard Buckner. Okay. From his album Surrounded that came out in 2013. Okay. And the song is called Portrait. Portrait. I hope everyone will enjoy this. I hope so. What did you think of Richard Buckner? I liked this song. It's very good, isn't it? It is. You know what it reminded me of? Yep. It reminded me a lot of Sufjan's first Christmas box set. Okay. It had like a really similar sound to that, mm, I thought. Interesting. interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess he kind of started around the same time as Sufjan. His first, he did, his oh, first did album he? was in 1994. Oh, okay. Yeah. It was called, uh, he did a solo album called Bloomed. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, he was in a band called The Doubters, and then that they weren't really going anywhere. So then he started doing some solo stuff. Right. Then uh, he started off in Lubbock, Texas, and he left there, moved to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Uh, in San Francisco, he did two two self released albums that he sold at live shows, and then he signed with MCA in 1996 and recorded two albums for them before uh, they released him from his contract. Uh, at which point, he nicknamed MCA Music Musical Career Assassins was his nickname for MCA. Hmm. And then for a number of years, he lived in Edmonton, Alberta. Oh, hey. Which I know was, that place. Yeah, it's here in Canada. Um, one of our more northerly towns. I've been there. I don't think I have. I've been there twice. They have a large mall. Yeah, I was in the mall. I went and saw a movie there. Oh, did you? Saw Beverly Hills Cop in did the mall. Did you go to any of the amusement park rides in the mall? I saw them. I did not go on them. Okay. And then I bought a a book in uh, the W.H. Smith at West Edmonton Mall. I bought... Um, Groucho, Harpo, Chico, and sometimes Zeppo. Oh, yeah. Joe Adamson's fantastic book about the Marx Brothers there. Cool. Which I really, I, well, I love that book. Anyway. Yeah, so he lived in Edmonton for a number of years with his wife, whose name was Penny Joe, Penny Joe Buckner. But after his 2002 album, which was called Impasse, he left her and Edmonton. And then he moved to Austin for a while. Then he ended up going to uh, New York. New York okay. State. He's moved around quite a bit. He has moved around quite a bit. He's kind of mm. a, a shiftless fellow. No, I shouldn't say that. He, um... So what's interesting was before the album surrounded, so he was pretty much like pretty regular album, you know, album every year or whatever. So in mm-hmm. 2006, he put out a, a record and then it was like six years later, he finally came out with his next album. And so it, the, the, so the album is called Our Blood and it had this super long and torturous birthing process. Okay. Um, so first he got caught in a musical Tar Baby, which is you get hired to write a f- soundtrack for a film. Oh, when they us- that usually takes a long time because movies yes, take a long time to make. They do. And it's a very collaborative process between yeah. you and the director and producers and stuff. And so he, you know, worked on that. He, did compo- he composed the score. I think he- if you're going to do something like that, mm-hmm. you should do it the way Sofiane Stevens did. Which is? Which is say no and then do it anyway and then s- just send it to them. <laughs> which is what he did for... Um, call Me By Your Name? Yeah. the Or Call Me By My Name, I think. Yeah, so. which is uh, the song he was nominated for an Oscar for. Yeah. 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 Mystery of Love. But that's a bit different, though, because you're not doing the soundtrack. No, he was not doing the soundtrack. Just he, was just, contrib- he just did a song. Yeah, you're contributing a song. Or I think he it. did a couple songs, but... Whereas Buckner was hired to do the entire yes. soundtrack for the film, so to create, like, the musical bed of the yeah. film. Yeah. No, that's a lot. And so he spent a lot of time doing that, and then the film was never released. Oh, bummer. So that... Why? I don't know. Was it... It doesn't say what movie it was. Oh. I couldn't find it. Interesting. So then he may have signed an NDA. I don't know. Uh, and then he... Uh, so after that... Typical P. P- I'm sorry, when was this? Uh, after 2006, so between 2006 and 2008, that kind oh, okay. of area, right? Hmm. So in typical PTSD behavior, yeah. after that, he took a... He, he moved again. Moved again, took on a series of menial jobs, mm-hmm. was working as a flagman for construction oh, okay. crews, uh, knocking on doors for the Census Bureau, yep. just stuff like that. These are... I don't, I don't want to be rude, yeah. but those are very typical wandering jobs yeah they're just jobs that anyone can do they're not skilled not skilled jobs yeah so like i have a lot of friends who did that sort of door-to-door work when they were um young and lost yeah 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 Yeah. i actually have like a bunch of friends who all met through a job like that Mm. but they're like hired to do like standing on side corners and like knocking door-to-door like do you want to donate to amnesty international or yeah whatever yeah yeah that is, those are lost soul jobs, that is yes. for sure. Uh, I guess finally kicked himself in the butt, decided to return to making music, 
and started working on, on this new album, On Our Blood. Now, his original recordings for the album, which he recorded some songs featuring uh, Sonic Youth drummer Steve Shelley was on it and stuff like that. Unfortunately, his tape machine broke and it destroyed all of the no! music he recorded. Oh my goodness. So that was all lost. This guy just can't win. He then became a suspect in a murder investigation oh my God. in upstate New York. Uh, he was cleared with, of any connection to the case. Yeah. But asked to describe the experience, Buckner said, When you're sitting in a locked door, cinder block room in the basement of a small town police station, being questioned about something so strange and horrible, even innocence doesn't save you from intimidation. Yeah. So it was a pretty awful experience, I imagine. So that took a chunk out of his life. Yeah. So he began recording the album again. But for the second time, the songs were lost when his laptop was stolen from his home when thieves broke into it. Holy moly. So he lost the album twice. Oh my God. So he finally got it finished. And I think those experiences kind of shaped him working on Surrounded. He recorded it by himself. He just, uh, he recorded it quickly, just him as the sole musician. Yeah. He colored the songs with an electric auto harp and an octave pedal. Okay. To kind of give a little color to songs, a bit of he organ padlocked and padlocked his laptop. <laughs> and apparently when he finished it, he sent the songs immediately to the guy who's going to mix it for him mm. just to get them yeah. to someone else so that they would be safe there. Right. He stored them all like in the cloud. Yeah, hopefully. And had like three backups. <laughs> I hope he did. Yeah, yeah. But it is a beautiful song. It's a beautiful album as well. It I is. highly recommend oh, it. Oh, yeah. I haven't heard the album, but yeah. I really like this song. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. Really I like like it very much. Oh, good. I'll have to check out the whole album. Yes. Do yeah. so. I'm sure you can find it on Spotify. Sp- Spotify. I'm sure I can. I'm sure you can. That's what I said. All right. Um, let's go to our next song, Mary. Okay. What is it? This is John Cale. Okay. The uh, We've had his stuff before, We right? had a song by him as a novelty song. Oh, yeah. What song? Uh, the man who couldn't afford to orgy, as he strangely oh, pronounces it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is this is a different song. This is Sylvia Said from 1974. And uh, I'll tell you right now, though, Mary, just so you know. Mm-hmm. This was the B-side to the single of The Man Who Couldn't Afford to Orgy. Oh, interesting. Yeah, kind of interesting. So let's give it a listen, everyone. This is Sylvia Said from 1974, John Cale. Wish I could say a big black boat with a big white sail over me and once in a while I'd pull into port drink some wine with a girl But Sylvia said, come to bed, it's so good to have you here. Some time ago, when time strikes me the most as I'd made up my mind long before and still 
don't cope at all So let's leave it all to the shell Please send my regrets In case I forget To P.O. Box nobody So and we're back. Mare. Yes. Your thoughts on Sylvia Said. Well, I was not a fan of the man who could not afford to orgy. Yeah. Um, I was also not a very big fan of this one. Oh, you didn't like it? No, I didn't like it. Not a keeper. I don't like his singing voice. Okay. Um, and I didn't like the, was it the flute or recorder or something? I think, I think it was a organ. An organ? It was going like, do, 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 like that part of it, you mean? Maybe it was a flute, I don't know. I don't know. I thought there was some sort of wind instrument I was uh, hearing. I thought it was an organ. Oh. Because I, I don't think Could anyone was on there to play flute. Could be wrong. But yeah. I didn't like that instrument, whatever it was. Uh. I wish there was some sort of website that would tell you what instruments were in songs. <laughs> or like, what sound is this? What some, instrument is this? Sometimes on the... On Discogs? <coughs> sometimes, well, Discogs only gives you what the liner notes tell you. And sometimes liner notes will give you like exact... Yeah. But often they'll just give you like the sort of inexact kind of general yes. musicians who are on it. Um, yeah, like Sofiane's liner notes will say like, Sofiane Stevens played these 50 instruments. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This yeah. guy came in to do this thing on this song. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. very specific, but yeah. yeah. So, yeah, and Kale is a multi-instrumentalist. Right. So his, uh, <laughs> sorry, one more second. My nose gets plugged up so it's hard. Okay. Um, so in my weird world, Mary, mm-hmm. John Kale is a very important person. Okay. We've, we have talked about him before. Yeah. And his marriage to Betsy Johnson and Miss Miss, Cin- Miss Cinderella. Miss Cinderella, that's right. Yeah, we're going to talk about that a little bit more. Cause I'm going to go into a little bit more detail okay. about it. But, because um, I do think it relates to this song. But, uh, yeah, he has like oversized importance in my world. Interesting. Like in terms of like, I think over, like in the music, like most people, if you talk to, they'd say like, oh, John Cale. They might go, huh. If you said, oh, he played in the Velvet Underground, they'd go, Okay. Right. Hmm. Shrug. Yeah. But the Velvet Underground, they're the band that launched a thousand bands. Let's put it like, it's one of those things, one of those jokes where everyone who bought the Velvet Underground's first album formed a band. Right. And I think that's, it's a joke, but it's partly true. Yeah. And then how influential they were. And so John Kill was part of that. You know, he produced the first Stooges album. He produced um, Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers album. Mm-hmm. He produced... Patty, Ho- Patty Smith's Horses. Yep. Like, he's part of, like, a very seminal period in, in music history. Right. His own albums were never really super successful. It, you know, like, I maybe, like maybe you're right. Like, he's not like a... You know, he was a guy... He was avant-garde composer. He, yeah. He studied with Lamonte Young in New York before he, before he joined up with the Velvet Underground. And so he kind of comes to it from a not rock and roll perspective. Yeah. And so it's kind of interesting to me as a music... As a music nut... Nerd. Music nerd, I guess you could say, as someone who, listening to someone who approaches rock and roll from a non-rock and roll place. Right. Um, I think, so, 
we mentioned like we mentioned this album before. This is from the same. This is not from the same album, but it's from the same time period as the man who couldn't afford to orgy. So around the time that he did uh, his record um, Fear, nineteen seventy four, like he moved back to London in nineteen seventy four. I think he was kind of escaping whatever was going on in the states. Maybe trying to get his marriage was failing. His marriage to Cynthia Johnson oh, to Cynthia Cin- Wells was failing. I believe her name is Miss Cinderella or Miss Cindy. Yes, uh, better known. Yes, better known as Miss Cindy of the GTOs Collective. Mm-hmm. And he he uh, he moved back to London. He'd been in, he'd been in America for a long time, but he moved back to London. And in one year, he wrote, played on, and produced three albums. Wow! Those albums being Fear, nineteen seventy four, Slow Dazzle, and Helen of Troy, nineteen seventy five. Although Helen of Troy was released without Kale's permission or knowledge. Oh, weird! Like he was working on it, and then the record company just put it out. That's so terrible. Yeah, it's kind of weird. So he played keyboards, guitar, viola violin bass and sang on all the records oh wow and then on this album he was joined by fellow island uh signees brian eno mm-hmm. who'd been in roxy music at this point he was in, in the midst of his solo career so he'd done like uh taking tiger mountain by strategy and uh and um that other album uh, here come the warm jets okay but then also roxy music's phil manzanera joined joined to, as a, to help play guitar and i think it's most likely him playing guitar on sylvia says now I was, you know, when I was researching it, some people were talking about how, like, this song is a dig at Lou Reed. Okay. Because suppose, supposedly a dig at Lou Reed. Now, the title could be a reference to Candy Says, which is, like, the opening track to the Velvet Underground's third album. Okay. Which was done after John Cale had left the band. Right. But it could also not be. And then people have s- said that Sevil- Sylvia is supposed to be a reference to Sylvia Morales, who... Uh, Reed married in 1980, but here's the thing, Mary. Mm-hmm. They did not meet until 1977. So why in 1974, John Cale would be planting these sort of hidden digs at Lou Reed in a song with mentioning a woman he wouldn't meet for three years? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense to me. So I think it's more likely that Sylvia is a is a reference to Cynthia. His oh wife. yes, yeah. It's sim- similar name. Yeah, so similar name. Now and now there's an interesting history at this point. So. The album, Fear, was recorded sometime up to October, because it was released in October 1974. Okay. So it was probably recorded in the summer of 1974 and released, and, and then ready, ready for release in October. Right. In July 1st, 1974, Kale, with Brian Eno, Kevin Ayers, and Nico, performed a concert together. It was kind of an attempt by Island to say, do you know who these artists are? They are Island artists. Right. Because... Island up to that point had been was primarily known as a reggae label. Oh, okay. And the, you know they were you know they had Nick Drake on the mm-hmm. label. They had a few other bands that were definitely kind of, not reggae. They had a few kind of, but you know they didn't really very successfully promote Nick Drake. Let's, yeah. let's be honest. And it, you know, and it's hard for record labels who are known for one thing to sell other things. You yes. Know? So, like Columbia Records would be an example of that in the in the in the sixties, early sixties, when they were a very square label. Right. You know, rock bands they signed tended to to not fare very well because the label. Didn't, didn't know really, how to promote them. Didn't know how to promote rock yeah. and roll, yeah. And, and its and its sales force didn't like rock and roll. Right. Its sales force was still in the Mitch Miller mindset of yeah. rock and roll is, is a fad and it's going to disappear right. soon. And so what's the point of spending a lot of time on this stuff when we've, you know, we've got like, uh, we've got Harry Belafonte yeah. to promote, you know? Yeah. We got these guys. That's never going away. Yeah. 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 Or like how um, RCA didn't know how to market anyone who wasn't Elvis. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, they tended to crush other bands rather right. than market them in, in, in lieu of uh, of Elvis, right? 
Oh no, uh, we were going to promote your album, but we had we got all this important Elvis stuff coming out. <laughs> We've got all these important Elvis re-releases. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, so they put together this, this uh, concert with Eno, Kevin Ayers, and Nick, Nico, and it was recorded July 1st, 1974. And it came mm-hmm. out as an album called July 1st, 1974. And now shortly before the performance, Kale learned that Kevin Ayers had slept with his wife the night before. Oh. And so <laughs> there's an interesting picture on the cover of... The band, there's Brian Eno in the back, mm-hmm. Nico mm-hmm. beside Brian Eno, kind of leaning into the shot. Right. And Kevin Ayers and John Cale yeah. sitting beside each other. And John Cale is look- looking at Kevin Ayers. Oh. And it's very interesting to think of what he was thinking and looking at him. Uh, and the, the, the event is, memori- is memorialized, I should say, on, on the song called Gun on Fear, where he says, he sings, that bugger in the short sleeves fucked my wife, did it quick and split. And I guess they did kind of have a reconciliation after this. But I think, like I say, I think their marriage was already suffering from the fact that Kale was a drug addict and an alcoholic. And, you know, he'd married a woman who was a groupie. Right. She came out of a culture of sleeping around yeah. and making sleeping with rock musicians your your personal goal. Yeah. As in a way you got points for doing that. Right. And so I, it's, um, yeah. So I think, I really do feel like this song is shaped by a marriage that I think the album Fear and the song is shaped by a marriage that was already rocky before before it hit the rocks in London. Yeah. So I do think it's kind of interesting. But I, I like the song a lot, to be honest with you. But but Mary, mm-hmm. you know what? You almost never like the th- songs that I put in this place on on the mixtapes because I always put the weirdest songs right around here. Really? Because I think that's where they belong on a record is mm. is just somewhere middle in the yeah, midst of other songs. Yeah, that's fair. Well, yeah, because you don't want it. You don't want them like first or second. You don't want them first right? or second. You don't want to make people just turn it off without yeah, continuing. Yeah, but you also don't want, like, I feel like you want them sort of just past, like, in between, like, quarter way and halfway. Yeah, you don't right? want it halfway because you want to, like... You want to have, like, your big, I, like, I, your... I always think in terms of albums. Yes, I always think that's in terms when of you records. want your ender, yeah. and then you're going to the next, your, 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 your side, side opener. Op- that's right. Um, but, yeah, like, I feel like, especially w- between that quarter and that halfway, or that halfway and that... Yeah finish on the if you're thinking side yeah um people are too invested in the album by that point to yeah i mean someone's listening to, listen, right? to the compilation they're like oh i don't feel like getting up and turning off this song i don't yeah. like very much or they like or they like the song who knows yeah they're not all you mary that's true but now as you know i have to take it off replace it with a different song mm, yep for when you send it back to jamie yeah so let's go to our next song mary all right i feel snubbed well that's and been that's only been one no and six yeses, so it's pretty good. <laughs> it's pretty good. So let's uh, let's go let's go turn to Wilco, who I was going through a bit of a Wilco phase at this point because I had purchased uh, in a used record store uh, the <laughs> the CD A Ghost Is Born because I'd heard a couple of songs from it and I really liked it, but I was su- I was too suspicious of Wilco to go in and actually buy a CD by them because <laughs> I I felt I'd been bitten twice and uh, should you know what did they say once bitten or twice bitten once shy. That's kind of where I was by this point. Right. I got bought Summer Teeth, or I bought AM, and then I bought Summer Teeth based on like all this raves and stuff like that. And I was just like, what is everyone talking about? This is okay, but it's not great. And then I heard a couple songs from, from A Ghost Is Born, and I was like, oh, this is great. And so then I, uh, so I went and I bought the UCD. Oh, no, it was kind of like hedging my bets, right? Right. And so let's listen to uh, Theologians from 2006, everyone. Here we go. I don't know 
Okay. Thoughts on Theologians by Wilco. Um, I liked it a lot. I thought it was super fun. Yeah, I like the singing. Yeah. I like the drums. <laughs> I like the guitar. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good how, song. How about the piano? I like the piano also. Not enough to note it down here, but I did I liked the song. <laughs> so yeah, it was good. Oh, I'm glad to hear yeah, that. It was yeah, it's a fun song. It is a fun song. Once again, incoherent. Yes. You know, a cherry ghost. I don't know what that means, but okay. That's fine. Who knows? But you know what, Mary? Mm-hmm. More importantly, we're keeping on with, with our Jim Rourke, Jim O'Rourke theme that we've had going on for the last Oh, what is, what's, what's that? Having a Jim O'Rourke song? Well, we, we, uh, the song, this album was, uh, produced by Jim O'Rourke. Oh, right, right, right. Okay. So let me just give you a little history. Wait, of, can I also say yeah? that this is a song that has the name of the, no, yes, the name of the album is lyrics from this song. Yes, that's Which is true. much like... What Elvis Costello does, yes, right? Yes, that's true. That's yeah. what I also really like about it, is yes. that it uses that that little thing, which I, I love that Elvis Costello does that, because then you can listen to the album, and when you hit that song, you're like, oh! There it is. Yes. You yeah. can say, like, like Penn and Teller recommend movies. That's Duncan and I do that. Who does it Who does it best? Me. <laughs> Why is that, Ver? 
I don't know. I just pay more attention, I think. I think. Well, I think you were trained. I was also trained from a young age. <laughs> trained from a young age. Not to be a circus clown, but to say yes. <laughs> to catch the name of a movie when they say it. <laughs> Last night, Duncan and I watched Master and Commander. Okay. And it's, I guess, technically Master and Commander, Cole on the Far Side of the World. And I said the Far Side of the World. And he said yes. And I said, mm-mm. It's called Master and Commander, Cole and Far Side of the World. You don't get points for just Far Side of the World. <laughs> uh, I, I think the movie is okay. Yeah. What do you think of it? I liked it. Yeah, my problem is, is I love the book series. I haven't read the books. I know. So that's the that's So the I thing. so love the book series. So I was like yeah. so looking forward to this movie. And it's sort of like a cobbling together of several different books yeah. into one movie. I mean... And I felt that kind of, to me, it dissipated what was really great about this book. Oh, yeah. Like, like the we first just, book could have been done. It would have been fantastic. Right. Because you know, like, it's all about him becoming a post-captain. Oh, okay. Like, you know, he, originally he's not like he's not there yet. He's just a captain right. of a ship. And... And he did these, fan- and he just was in the Mediterranean, and uh, he did these fantastic. And it was based on a real person as well, mm-hmm. like Patrick O'Brien based the books on a real, based Jack Aubrey on a real captain, real captain who had mm-hmm. some of these real adventures. In that at that point, in the, that point in the series, of course, as it went on, it got harder and harder to yes. base on. But he would like search through, he would read through like all the reports and stuff like that. Right, they're in the records for yeah. for the Admiralty. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and he would find these great stories and and, and reproduce them in the books. Cool. But yeah, I just, I love those books. And I, so I, the movie was okay. But one of, a lady who I um, used to shoe, shoe her horses, mm-hmm. her husband worked on the tall ships. Oh, really? For that movie. Duncan would love to hear that. Yeah. Duncan was telling me all about the boats the whole time we were watching it. <laughs> Did you know that they made a, like a life-size one that <clears throat> they could be in? And then they also made he'd, a... He'd love the books, I bet you. Oh, he's read, oh. he's read the first one at least. Oh, okay. I think he's... Master and Commander. Yeah. He's not, he, he reads. He just doesn't read like you and I do. Okay. <laughs> which, as Eve has pointed out, is, you know. Ten times I'm, ten times more than normal? <laughs> yeah, hundred, it's hundred times more than unnecessary normal? Unnecessary amount. Well, I was thinking about when I worked at that, when I worked at that pick Berry Place over yeah. that summer, and I read, I worked there for two months, and I read 30 books <laughs> in two months. Like. <laughs> I, I've slowed down a lot of my reading, just because I'm super busy these days. Yeah. But also... I don't have a job like I used to when I worked in the mm, parking lot. Yeah, lots. you could just sit and read. Oh, man, it was, it was yeah. good to get paid to do nothing like that. Yeah. So those, w- those kind of jobs are gone. No, you can still find them. Oh. You just have to... They just don't pay very well. That's, that's what I mean. Yeah. But I got pretty good pay. Not great, but pretty good. And then I got paid just for working weekends. and Yeah. Uh, yeah, like when I was at the Goji Berry place, the pay was fine. And like the managers were really chill because they just did it like for fun as like a side thing. Yeah, they had like yeah. a business that... They like made good money off of, yeah, and yeah. then they were just really passionate about goji berries, <laughs> and so they had this like totally failing side business where they were like, "We'll just hire one person and have her be there, and that's what she does." And they kept being like, "Oh, and we'll get you a computer so you can do some computer stuff." And I was like, "Yeah, totally. Like, I can do like Excel spreadsheets or like do whatever you want. Just like get me a computer." And they were like, "Okay, we will." Then they never did, <laughs> and so I just read all the time, all the time. Yeah, good for you. I read Children of Men. That's a good book. I didn't like it. Oh, really? No. Huh. Boot movies better? Oh, way better. Alfonso Cuaron, the uh, the, uh, the the director who makes books better. Yes. Yeah. So also thinking of... Uh, the Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban? Yeah. 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 Duncan and I rewatched Children he, of Men the other he night. He improves the ending of Prisoner Oh, yeah? Of Do you think so? Yeah. Oh, yeah. For sure. If you read the book version, yeah, it's not as co- it's not as coherent and right. not as exciting as his. Interesting. Like his is way way better paced. Yeah, he's such a good director. Mm-hmm. Children of Men is such a good movie. Yeah. I think yeah, I think he really um because I found I found that Children of Men I had a couple problems with the book. Yeah. One problem I had with the book was that 
there were like too many things that they were like there was like too many issues oh, okay right whereas in the movie well, they, yeah they kind of just... like distilled it down to like immigration yeah and like that is like their big concern is like treatment of um immigrants yeah um and like all the other things that are issues in the book are happening in the background yeah of this of children of men the movie too yeah. right yeah. like um fertility testing if you are like if you pay attention to the backgrounds fertility testing and encouraging elderly people to commit suicide and um like that kind of stuff is like happening in the background and like you can pick it up if you're paying attention to like what's going on yeah. with like signs and stuff and like yeah um, books have to be a bit more explicit and they can yeah they can afford to have more yes they can but it just felt like it was too sort of scattered in the mm. book and like you didn't get as sort of like firm of vision mm -hmm. like i think that you can do something like that with having like a lot of different issues that you're yeah sort of upset about where they were mad about like the fertility testing and treatment of migrants and treatment of prisoners and um like pushing seniors to commit suicide yeah like these were all oh and then like the treat or like the how the um the young people were treated like better than everyone else and just like all this different stuff and there was like way more sort of like politics too where um theo's cousin was like the warden of britain right and so he wasn't just like someone in the government like he was in um in the movie where you just have like that one scene with him but in the book he's like a way bigger character and they spend mm. way more time on him and he's just like not i don't know not super interesting and theo in the book was also totally totally uh hateable hmm. because he like accidentally killed his kid when she was a toddler okay by running her over with his car but then just blamed his wife about it hmm. and was never like repentant or anything and was always just like why wasn't she watching her and i was like well you suck huh. um but i mean i pj just wanted to have a character who had a had an arc you know has a redemption in the story right the clive owen in the film is not he's kind of a bit of a cipher because he's not really He's not really anything. There's no reason to not like him or not or not or to like him. He's just sort of there. I mean, kind I of experiencing the movie. He's sort of like the he's sort of our our eyes into this world, but he's well, not really. A, he's more of a cipher than a than a true character. No, I think that he's kind of like he's like washed up, right? Like he. But yeah, but what, but is that like does that need redemption that you're washed up? Well, I think I think it needs redemption that you've you've given up on mm. caring about things. But everyone has in that world. Well, yeah, but, well, not everyone. Julian hasn't. No, no, I mean, but, like, the general world has given up right. on, on... But just because the general caring. world has given up doesn't mean that everyone has to, right? Yeah. And, like, um, yeah, and I think it's just about sort of, yeah, finding things to care about again, mm -hmm. right? Because, like, it didn't have to be um, finding key yeah. and realizing that, like, people could have babies again right yeah. like it could have been something else he could have been focusing on other things he could have continued his activism yeah he just kind of i make you want to watch that movie again it's so good i just think about the scene where they're walking where she's carrying the baby and they're walking out of the oh yeah past all the soldiers yeah oh so good and yeah and chiwetel a geophore's character says like julian wanted it to be peaceful but how could it be peaceful like how could we do with it, do this with peace when they treat us like we're not human and then they're like walking out of the building and everyone is so peaceful yeah and it's like you, it could have been peaceful like you <laughs> you chose violence yeah, right like yeah. they chose violence but you chose to respond with it yeah. it could have been another way yeah <sighs> such a good movie and such a good <laughs> cast too you yeah, know it's... like chuatella geofor is so good in that movie 
um julianne moore mm-hmm. is so good in it too yeah. and she's yeah michael kane michael kane so good yeah i, re- I you, didn't, you didn't miss here folks everyone i did actually say my cocaine what my cocaine you you said that yeah oh but but you're trying to say it in his accent that's what he that's what it kind of sounds like he says his name is <laughs> my cocaine <laughs> yeah michael kane is really really good in that movie mm-hmm. yeah he is very good who's that who's that guy who plays sid that actor i don't know i can't i can't remember who sid is now oh he's the um he's the the fascist pig he's the guy who gets them into the um the oh, into the internment the, camp the, yeah into the internment camp He's like one of those actors where you like look at his filmography and you're like, oh my god, this guy's been in everything. It's not Pete Postlethwaite. No, he has this name like I don't know, I can't remember. It's been a while since I yeah. saw it. I'd have to. It's like Andy something or. Okay. It's one of these names where you're like, I don't recognize his name, but then you look at his <laughs> filmography and you're like, holy moly. <laughs> Working actor. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. That's cool. Well, anyway, read Children to Men. <laughs> oh, I also read all of Joseph Boyden's books that summer, and I like him a lot too. Okay, I don't know who that is. He's a Canadian author. He's very good. Hmm. I like him. Yeah, Canada. Mm-hmm. So, Mayor. Yes. Let's talk a little bit about Wilco. And, okay. And Jim O'Rourke and their relationship. Okay, we have done. We have played Wilco songs from I know, A Ghost Is Born. I know, before. but I I decided to figure out how Jim O'Rourke became involved in all okay. this stuff. Tell me. And so, so they're working on the album before A Ghost Is Born, which is called Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Yes. Do you know what that's from? Do I know what Yankee Hotel from? It's the NATO phonetic alphabet. There you go. And Dad asking me questions with the NATO phonetic <laughs> alphabet. Come on. So around that time, Jeff Tweedy had become enamored with Jim O'Rourke's album Bad Timing, which had come out about two years before right. this point. He, and he What he particularly loved were the instrumental tracks that alternated guitar parts with orchestration. He thought that was really great. Mm-hmm. And then around this time, the Noise Festival in Chicago invited him to perform offering to pair him up with an activist choosing. So at one point they were like, you can work with the Mekons. We have the Mekons coming if you'd like to work with them. But Tweedy chose to work with O'Rourke. Hmm. So while they were rehearsing for the show, O'Rourke brought in a drummer that he knew, a guy named Glenn, Co- Glenn Co- uh, Koch. And the experience was so enjoyable that they decided that they would, would record as a group. And they named themselves Lucifer. And I'm sorry, Lucifer? Nope, Lucifer. Okay. But when I said that like that, it made me think of Lucifer, and you're right. Maybe that was what they're kind of getting at. But Lucifer, they recorded about six songs in the summer of 2000. Now, they didn't get released right away because uh, Tweedy was still, you know, in the middle of trying to get Yankee Hotel Fox shot. Right. But what happened was Lucifer began to have a backwards effect on the recording of Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. So, for instance, for some time, Tweedy had been unhappy with the band's drummer, this guy named Ken Coomer, who... who would never play the same thing twice. Oh, okay. And would do a lot of weird fills and stuff like that, which Tweedy started to find kind of annoying, especially when you're recording an album and have the person continually changing the drum part, is, I guess was kind of annoying. And so he decided, he opted to replace Coomer with, with Glenn Koch, mm-hmm. who had just been playing with in Loose Fur. And then because Tweedy wanted like Wilco to have this progression of from album to album, he was very unhappy with what they had been doing with Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. He felt he felt it was very stagnant and kind of stale, and it was more reminiscent of Summer Teeth, which he didn't want to have like a Summer Teeth happen again. And so he was turning, and he said he felt like the album was lacking an emotional center. Oh, okay. So he was very unhappy with his bandmate Jay Bennett's mixes for the album. So Jay Bennett, there's a there's a 
movie and it's called something like I Can Break Your Heart or something like that. It's a it's a documentary that was one of those unfortunate documentaries that are made at a time when things are really bad for a band. Mm. And so it basically documents making Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, but also the firing of Jay Bennett oh, from the group. Okay. And when you're watching it, you can see like they're getting, getting tensions are getting bad yeah. and stuff like that. Because what happens is Bennett decided not only to be like the multi-instrumentalist that he was, mm-hmm. play piano, played guitar, blah, everything, but also he wanted to be producer and engineer for the album. He wanted to do mm-hmm. it all because they had just bought a studio called, they called the the Loft in right. Chicago, and they installed a studio in it. And so he just wanted to run everything. Okay. And you could see him like, and there's a point in the movie where he's like boring Jeff Tweedy, talking with all this <laughs> minutia about what he we need to do this and we got to do this and we need to blah 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 yeah. and this and that and he's just getting all technical and like you can see Jeff Tweedy's just like. You can see in his face, like, he doesn't care. Yeah. Like, he just wants what we're doing here yeah. to sound like this here. Yeah. But I don't care about any of this part of it. Yeah. I just want... you want. I want to get from A to B. I don't care about A, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, <laughs> exactly. 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Yeah. Yeah. And so so he was unhappy with what Jay Bennett was doing. And so he invited Jim O'Rourke to come in and to remix right. the mixes that Jay Bennett had done. And... <clears throat> And even Bennett had to admit that what Jim O'Rourke did was better than what he had done. Right. Well, I mean, he's Jim O'Rourke. <laughs> he's Jim O'Rourke. And so, but because he was so, because Bennett was like so, so ca- caught up in this whole thing, yeah. he was having trouble like letting go, right? So, um, especially since O'Rourke, uh, trying to increase the drama of the music was removing contributions by band members from the mixes so it wasn't just like you know changing levels he was like cutting out entire parts (coughs) yeah he was like being like oh i this is this is no longer our project this is my project yeah he's like making executive decisions he's he's playing instruments on it Hmm. glenn koch is on it right and so sometimes he was removing so many parts that only the members of loose fur were left in the actual mixes oh wow eventually bennett was let go uh from the group during the sessions and now, so when we come to A Ghost is Born, Jeff Tweedy was now the lead guitarist in the group because right. that was that was Jay Bennett's job before. Mm-hmm. And now he's the now he's the guy who so O'Rourke already in Loose Fur, O'Rourke had been encouraging Tweedy to like get better as a guitar player, and now he really had to get better and so um, to develop his guitar skills for the album. So even even on a song like Theologian, which is essentially a very kind of soft, almost almost reminiscent of a song from Summer Teeth with its guitar figure and stuff like that. Uh, but the guitar part in it is like so much a ghost is born Jeff Tweedy playing mm. that it's, uh, you know, it's kind of has its own personality. Yeah, I really, I really do like the song and the album. But I wanted to play a song by Lucifer. I, I thought maybe people out there hadn't, hadn't heard them before. And so I thought I'd play a song from their, this isn't from their, initial kind of ep or six song album this is from their second album which is called born again in the usa this came out in 2006 uh so you can tell that it was like done um around the same time as a ghost is born maybe that's why i like it so much uh so this is um this song is called pretty sparks everyone so let's give it a listen pretty 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 summer summer don't be deceived don't be defeated by a stranger to your strangest needs Don't be denied Don't be overrated or be rated or identified Want some of you, we're coming through Want some of you, we're coming through Want some of you 
So that was Loose Fur with the song Pretty Sparks. What do you think of that? I thought it was good. Yeah, it's kind of a little fun bit of a kind of alt prog, let's call yeah, it that. Yeah, I didn't like it as much as... Um, theologians. Yeah. Yeah, it's no theologians, but it's still fun. It's fun yeah, stuff. it was fun. There's, some, there's, a great, um, there's a great instrumental on that album, too, that I like a lot, but I decided not to play the instrumental, since you're not an instrumental fan. Thank you. I appreciate that. All right, Mary, let's move on to our next track on this album. This is uh, Badfinger. Oh, I like them. Oh, well, that's good to know. This is from their album, which is was not meant to be called this, but it's now called Bad Finger from 1974. This song is Andy Norris. Okay. Let's give it a listen, everybody. Run out of money, run out of good, run out of reasons and misunderstood. Run out of rhythm, run out of rhyme, run out of feelings and right out of time.
And we're back. Mary? Yes. That was maybe a bit more of a rockin' Badfinger song than we're used to most of the time. What did you think of that? Um, I like I liked it. Yeah. I liked it a lot. I like Badfinger, yeah, generally. I, I do too. Um, and yeah, I thought that this one was also very good. But I'm really curious. Yes. When you say that this album was not intended to be called Badfinger. Yeah. What did you mean, what did you mean by that? Well, let me tell you. Please do. <laughs> well, let me just say first thing about Badfinger, Mary, that they are one of the most tragic bands. What? In the history of rock music. Oh, no. I didn't know that. With not one, but two suicides of, oh. of major members. First songwriter and guitarist Pete Ham in uh, 1975, followed by fellow songwriter and guitarist Tom Evans in 1983. Oh, no. And, and there's such a mess of legal and managerial and financial tangles initiated by the band's manager, Stan Pauly, that the band essentially ceased to exist in the mid-70s because, because it could no longer function or move forward. It was so enmeshed in problems like it tried to like even when they tried to to like sign with other record labels right they couldn't because they didn't even own their own name oh they had like nothing there's just no way forward for them but when you look at the history like you look at the the history of the band like if if you didn't know that about them if i just said to you listen to this about badfinger mary Mm -hmm. listen to this about badfinger they were the first group to be signed to apple records Yes. They were called the Ivies when they first signed with them. Cool. Their name was changed to Badfinger because it was felt like the Ivies was kind of an old-fashioned name. That's fair. And that, that, that time was over. And so Badfinger, there's a few different names uh, suggested by different different band members. Yeah. L- let me just say, all of them bad. Okay. And then someone came up Can with, I just say? Yeah. I'm not a fan of the name Badfinger. No? No. <laughs> Why not? I just don't think it's a very good name. Okay. Uh, it comes from, well... With a little help from my friends, the Beatles song from Sgt. Pepper okay. was originally given, before it was titled, it was called Badfinger Boogie. Okay. Because when John Lennon was playing the piano for it, when they were writing it, he had, yeah. a, he had a cut on his finger, on his forefinger. <laughs> so he had a bad finger, so they called it Badfinger Boogie because he couldn't use that finger very well. Right. And so someone remembered that name and they suggested it and Badfinger chose it themselves. Hmm. I thought, oh, that's an okay name. Now, so you're like, wow, so the first band signed to Apple Records. What, yeah. a, what an honor. Yes. You know, what a great thing to happen for a band. Yeah. You're right. Not only that, Mary, mm. they had four consecutive worldwide hits. Oof. And not only did they have four consecutive worldwide what hits, they? but they had some of the best producers. They had great like, great producers, besides one of them is kind of... But, okay, Paul McCartney produced their first hit, Come and Get It. Okay. You know, if you want yes. it here. Yeah. Mel Evans, who was not really famous as a producer, he was actually the, the Beatles roadie and oh, kind, okay. of, kind of assistant. Right. Mel. If you watch, uh, say, the movie Let It Be. Mm-hmm. You will see Mel Evans setting up their equipment on on the set before they begin rehearsing. Oh, cool. for the okay. What, uh, what? Sorry, what was? He produced a song, "No Matter What." Oh, okay. Which is a great song. Mm-hmm. No matter what you do. You know. mm-hmm. uh, then George Harrison mm-hmm. yes, produced "Day Part of Him." Day by Day. Mm-hmm. Great song. Yes, also great. Todd Rundgren. Yep. Produced also great. Baby Blue. Yes, also great song. <laughs> I was listening to um, what's that album? What's that album of theirs? Which one? The Badfinger. <laughs> Straight Up? Yeah. I was listening to Straight Up the that's other day. The, that's the Todd Rundgren produced album. Yeah. George Harrison had a little bit to do with it. He re- recorded about four songs for them. Okay. But then he got caught up in the concert for Bangladesh, which was a big, mm. big benefit concert. Mm-hmm. So he didn't couldn't do it. And so Todd Rundgren stepped in. And apparently, this is not uncommon. Mm-hmm. Todd Rundgren did not get along very well with the band. Mm. Todd, Rund- Todd Rundgren is a noted, notedly, especially this time, a very sarcastic guy. Oh, and very not everyone a- likes that. Very ironical. Yeah. And also super demanding. 
when he's when he's working with musicians, right. like what he wants them to do and stuff like yeah. that, and has real vision right. for the sound and everything. You can't deny the results because yes. straight up is a straight up it's, a great album. It is, yes. So I mean that worked really it's well. It's not bad. And he was invited back to work on their on their their album after this. So apparently they, they like they liked him enough that yeah. he got good results. That's good. But uh, and also their song "Without You, Mary," which didn't, they didn't have a hit with. Wait, it's called "Without You, Mary." No, no, "Without oh. You, Mary." It's your name. <laughs> Mary. <laughs> what? So, uh, <laughs> so uh, Harry Nelson had a big hit with it. Oh, okay. A big hit with without you. Yeah. Problem started. Well, the problems already were there. They had signed with this guy named Stan Pauly. He was a New York manager, New York based manager, and he was connected to the mafia. And he uh, was bad for the band. Let's put it that way. He was basically making. If you look at like what the band was getting paid for a year's work at that time, which was around eight thousand dollars, they're getting for a year, per year. Oof. He was making twenty eight thousand dollars. Oh, not great. So yeah, he was making uh, three times as much as any one me- one member of the band. Yeah. Uh, with the folding of Apple in nineteen seventy three, it kind of brought everything to a head as well because you know they they had signed the contract with Apple before they'd signed with Stan Pauly. Mm-hmm. But when it came time for him to re-sign the band with another label, he did this insane thing where he signed them up for a six album deal over three years with Warner Brothers Records. Okay. So when you read that, you're like, I thought the days of indentured servitude were over. Like I thought, like, you know, we've been talking about um, Emmett Rhodes signing like a crazy two album a year deal with ABC. Like why, why five years later, is this still a thing happening? Yeah. Like it makes no sense. But yes, he signed them. Now he also signed them to a, a management contract demanding two albums a year. So not only were they signed to the label, they were signed personally to him to provide two albums a year. This guy seems... Even this guy named St- Stan Poses, mm-hmm. who was was installed by Polly as the vice president of Badfinger Enterprises, his own company. Yeah. Polly's own company. He warned the band not to sign this contract. Hmm. He said, you don't want to do that. Yeah. But, but they, they did. did. Why? Because he told them that they were going to get $3 million from Warner Brothers. Oh. And he was going to, and he promised them a $225,000 signing bonus. Hmm. Did they get that? No. They didn't see any of that money. That's, now, this guy seems like a big jerk. So so while this is happening, the, the band was working on, well, interestingly, the final album the band was working on for Apple, which was called Ass, features on the cover a donkey being lured by a giant carrot in the sky, hmm. which, you know, yes. look at your own artwork, fellas. Yeah. What is it telling you? Yeah. They felt like they'd been ripped off by Apple mm-hmm. because Apple was just shutting down without, you know, without... You know, it was just shutting down and it was getting, it was just it kind of breaking their contract by ending. Yeah. So now the recording of Ass had been kind of difficult for the band. Like I said, they brought back T- Todd Rundgren to produce it. Right. But there was some sort of pay dispute between Rundgren and Polly. Okay. And so Rundgren left the project after two, two songs. Hmm. And so then the group attempted to produce themselves. And when Apple heard the results, they said, uh, uh, no. Yeah. And so then they had to hire a, a producer. They hired a first-time producer, a guy named Chris Thomas. Okay. Who went on to do great things. He produced, like, Roxy Music. He produced the Sex Pistols. He did a lot of stuff. Right. But he... Um, was just starting out. Just starting out. He was former. He was a former Ab- Abbey Road engineer, so that's probably okay. why they knew him. And so they hired him to, to improve the recordings and produce new tracking sessions. Three weeks after finishing Ass. Mm-hmm. Badfinger were back in the studio working on their first record for Warners. Three weeks, Mary. <coughs> yeah, that's not and this a lot is, of... And this is supposed to be two albums a year. So this is three albums a year yeah. that they're being asked to produce. Uh, the album was originally going to be called For Love or Money, 
a reference from the move to Apple, from Apple to Warner's. Right. But the label rejected the title, so the album officially has no title. Hmm. But it has come to be called Badfinger because their name is on it. Right. They're supposed to say Badfinger underneath it for Love, Love and Money. But when the uh, when the cover was being uh, produced, yeah. the record label had that title taken off of mm. it. So it left it with no title. Um, <clears throat> I forgot what I was going to say. Okay. Let me just say, because of the quick turnaround between albums, the band oh. was writing and recording the songs at the same time. Mm-hmm. And Andy Norris was a tape operator at Olympia Studios where the album was made. Okay. So they named it after him. It was written by Tom uh, Joey Molland. Mm-hmm. And his wife Kathy, they wrote the song together. Oh, okay. Can I? I I'm I'm curious. Yeah. When people, yeah, like this poly guy, yeah, s- um, sign artists to these onerous contracts, onerous contracts yeah. where they're expecting them to produce like way, way more. Yeah. Like why? Why do they think that they're going to get a good product from them? They don't care about that. What they want is money in their pocket. Yeah. So they're going to get. He's going to get money from, because part of the Warner's deal was the $225,000 bonus. Right. Was delivered per album. Oh, okay. So part of that $3 million, like it wasn't like a, a payout of $3 million. Yeah. It's $225,000 six times. Into those two years. Into, the, into, those, the, into, three, into, those, into three those three years. Into those three years, right. Yeah. And so every time they got put an album out, whether it's good or bad. Yeah. They get $225,000. He, he gets, $1. more importantly, Stan Pauly gets the majority of that $225,000. Right. Right. Hmm. The rest of it tied up in all kinds of songwriting garbage as well, right? Yeah. So he had them all. He had them six ways to Sunday. He had them yeah. so tied up, Ugh. and this is an unfortunate part of of that period. I'm sure it still happens now, but way less so because I think around in the mid '80s, music fans, concerned music fans, started to litigate against these kind of contracts yeah. on on behalf of people That's really good. who had the misfortune of being taken advantage of. Yeah. You know, particularly like uneducated people who are songwriters, you know, yeah. or or just un. And well, I don't yeah, mean uneducated to the fact that they were dumb. I just mean that they did not. They, they were, were often really young. They too, were young. Right? They had no legal knowledge. They didn't yeah. know what they were signing. They didn't know. Well, what yeah, I mean, like meant. this. It's just like four like young guys from Wales. Yeah. Like, what do they know about fame or money or like legality or like what's fair to them? Yeah. yeah. Right. Like when they're being told by someone like, "I'm going to give you more money than you've ever thought, of, like you've ever imagined owning." Yeah. Like, how are you going to say no to that? Yeah. Right? right? Like, you're not thinking like, and This seems oh, like your only chance yeah, of, and you're of not, getting there. You're not going to think like, oh, like, what I have is valuable. I'll get a better deal somewhere else. You're thinking like, I have to take this. Because yeah. what if it's my only option? Yeah, exactly. Right? And like, obviously, Polly is also selling that to them, right? Sure. Like, he's definitely telling them like, you're not going to get a better offer anywhere else. You're not going to get a better offer. You know, I'm, I've already, he already managed a couple other, other uh, well-known acts. Yeah. And so, you know, I've got these guys in my stable. Yeah. You know, you can see they're doing well. I, yeah. I can make you, I can make you guys a fortune. We, you know, blah, blah, blah. And yeah, like people like, well, I can't remember his, I can't remember his name now, but the guy who wrote Louie Louie, that became like a huge song, you know, mm-hmm. uh, he sold the rights to that for $30. Ugh. Yeah. You know, cause he needed, he needed the money. Right. So yeah. So in the 1980s, like I say, people success, successfully litigated, like they got him back his, his songwriting That's royalties great. for that, for yeah. that song. They just like, they, you know, they just. They just took these to court and just, just said, you know, like these kind of contracts are punishments. They're yeah. not fair to, you know, like... The songwriter. In legal terms, contracts should benefit both sides. Yes. If the contract is only benefiting one side, it is an unfair contract mm-hmm. and, you know, should not... It's unenforceable. Yeah. And yeah, it's just unfortunate that, you know, before this sort of stuff started happening, well, you know, mem- the members of the group had, you know, killed themselves. Yeah. You know, it's sad. 
it was just the pressure of of the situation they were under was just mm-hmm. too much to bear. I mean, when when Pete Ham killed himself, his girlfriend was pregnant with his daughter. Mm. He already had like a young son. Yeah. And then he and you know he wrote a letter saying how much he loved them. Yeah. And then he wrote like his PS was like, "This is all Stan Polly's fault." Really? Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, it's so it's so sad. It's so sad. That's. I know. That's really sad. <laughs> I'm really sad now. <laughs> Sorry, sweetie. <laughs> That's okay. Well, maybe I can make you smile. Mm, maybe. Maybe I can make you smile by playing this next song. Okay, what's the next song? Which is Steve Harley and Cockney Rebel. Okay. Make me smile. Bracket, come oh. and see me. Hey. Bracket and bracket. <laughs> from the album The Best Years of Our Lives from 1975. All right, let's listen to it. Let's give it a listen. Maybe anyway. it'll work. <laughs> <laughs> Done it all. You've broken every code. Paul the rebel to the floor. You spoke the game, no matter what you say. But only metal, whatever. Nothing left or gone and run away. Maybe you'll tarry for a while. It's just a test, a game for us to play. Win or lose, it's hard to smile. Resist, resist. You have to have Come up and see me To make and me smile I'll do what you want
Do, 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 do. You've done it all. You've broken every code. <laughs> you pulled the rebels to the floor. <laughs> ba, 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 ba. <laughs> Good impersonation, right? Pretty accurate, yeah. <laughs> They're Cockney. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we're back. Mary, what did you think of uh, Steve Harley and Cockney Rebels? I like the song. I know, I do know this song. You do know that song, yes. Uh, it's a really fun song. It is fun. And when the song first started, I was like, wait a second, is that Bob Dylan? <laughs> and I was like, no, it's not Bob Dylan. But it, did, it does sound, the singing does sound a little bit like Bob Dylan. Yeah. It has the yeah. same sort of, um, how do I? It's mannered vocals. Yes. Mannered, mannered vocals. vocals. Yeah. yeah. Both, both singers are singing like, I've mentioned it before, but when you listen to the first Bob Dylan bootleg box the bootleg series box set there are like early versions of songs in there like mm-hmm. like a rolling stone and stuff like that where he's just singing along normally right like pre like starting to add his, his vowel stretching and everything yeah. to it which you know he's just having some fun with it yeah and i think steve harley was as well just kind of adding these sort of stretched out vowels yeah. and stuff to the song to give it sort of a a, a specific a, sound a specific, a specific sound which i yeah. really like i really like the you know that whole kind of you've done it oh yeah You've broken every code. <laughs> I, think, I, I like yeah. all that stuff. I think it it works really well. This song kind of came about in in bad circumstances too. Like, oh no! <laughs> he, so he was. And our next our next artist is Elliot Smith. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it works out into a to a triumph for him. Okay. But, so he started off as a journalist. He was like a newspaper reporter. Oh wow! And I've heard he worked as a music journalist, but I did not find any evidence of that. He maybe wor- wrote music for the newspapers that he worked for but he wasn't like working for like new musical express or something right but he was a journalist and then he started playing around local clubs in london like the folk clubs and stuff like that and meeting people and he started to put together this group around himself and they recorded a couple of songs and they did okay they did better in europe than they did in in england initially Hmm. but on his second album which was called the psychomoto wait uh, sorry what year was this again uh this would be like 73 okay and then in 74, the Psychomoto came out mm-hmm. and and that that had like some hit songs on it and he started getting attention and and they even won a gold award for outstanding new act of 1974. Mm-hmm. Cool. But after their during their tour of this album and all the success, mm-hmm. tension started growing up in the band mm. between Steve Harley and the rest of the band. Right. And the reason was is the other band members suddenly started to write their own material for the band. Uh-oh. An idea that Harley rejected because, as he he felt, he had hired the band members with the understanding that he would be the sole songwriter for this for this project. Like that was the whole idea of this thing. Yeah, you were here to back my my songs. If you're writing songs too, then that's not that's not what we're doing, right? And so they left. They quit. They all they all left the group except for the drummer. The drummer stayed. And so a couple of days after this happened, Harley began writing "Make Me Smile" uh, because. So the song is basically a vindictive, a vindictive finger pointing song at his former members. Oh, really? Saying, "Yeah, you broke the code. <laughs> you, right. you, you dragged the rebels to the floor, and all you know those are all kind of coded messages to these guys. Hmm. And it's kind of right in line. To me, it's kind of right, right in line with that sort of Dylan-esque delivery because Bob Dylan wrote so many finger pointing songs in the '60s. <laughs> you know, like a Rolling Stone. Uh, Won't you please crawl out your window? It's all over now, baby blue. Like oh, there's so many songs that he wrote that are just like you know, Positively Forest Street, which are just like these songs condemning someone for something. We don't even know what he's condemning them for. Yeah. But he originally wrote the song as a slow blues track, kind of reflecting the dark mood of the song and the the feelings of it as he wrote it. 
After putting a new lineup of the band together, which he pointedly named Steve Harley and Cockney Rebel. Right. That way, no one could dispute who the exact band leader was. Yeah. Um, they went into Abbey Road Studios to record their new album, which was, as I said, called The Best Years of Our Lives, with uh, this producer named Alan Parsons producing it. Alan Parsons, pretty well known as, like, uh, he engineered Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. He later started his own group called The Alan Parsons Project. Okay. When I grew up, I got tormented by the song on the radio called Eye in the Sky by The Alan tormented. Parsons Project. Yes, tormented is a word. The eye in the sky. Why, honey, you do, 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 do. Actually, it's not that bad. I did buy the record, to be honest with you. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was uh, Parsons, though, who suggested that uh, Make Me Smile should be played faster and the chorus should be more rhythmic. Something, this is not, and this is something, something that Harley has never disputed, by the way. He's always agreed that, that Par- Parsons suggested that. But Parsons has grossed that he never got, quote unquote, paid for it. Right. Paid for the suggestion. But my feeling is he did get paid for it. He got paid as a producer yeah. to produce the record, which is what he did by suggesting that they speed it up. Mm-hmm. And he possibly got points on a highly successful album, which is what a lot of producers in the 70s got a point, got a percentage of the right. of the amount of money the record made as a, as a hit. Mm-hmm. You know, like, yes, he helped craft it, but he crafted it as a producer the same way that George Martin, who suggested that the Beatles speed up Please Please Me, does not get a... I, I never asked for a, a credit right. for writing the song. This yeah. is so weird to me. So the original idea in the song was that in the middle of the song... Oh, the other thing I know that's great about the song, Mary? Mm-hmm. The stops. Oh, okay. I love songs that, that stop for a second. Yes, and you then do it like starts that. Again. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, and they stop. Ooh, la, la. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's great. <coughs> but the middle eight of the song was supposed to have a sax solo. Mm. The guitarist, this guy named Jim Cregan, who played guitar for the group at this time, he, just, he started playing the the idea for the solo on his guitar. Oh, okay. And it developed into that very Spanish-sounding solo. It sounds very Spanish to me, the solo. Apparently, Steve Harley has said that all the members of his band he's ever had, all the guitarists, always hate this song because <laughs> the guitar solo is so difficult to play. Like when they did when they recorded it, it took a long time to get the get it right. Oh, okay. And they had to like do it as three composite tape, or three different tapes had to be made into one hmm. composite of the song. Now the song also features. Uh, background singers, you can hear them singing mm-hmm. the ooh la la part yes. and stuff like that, which Harley mentioned that he borrowed from the uh, Rubber Soul era Beatles. They felt like that album was like their kind of their their high point of their vocal right. sounds together. So the song features Tina Charles, mm-hmm. who would in a couple of years have a big hit with a disco song called "I Love to Love, But My Baby Loves to Dance." Hmm. It had her friend Linda Lewis on it, who had several hits in the early seventies. It had Yvonne Keeley singing, who was a Dutch singer. Okay. That Steve Harley produced when he was between between uh, Mark Cockney Rebel Mark One and Cockney Rebel Mark Two, he uh, produced her, and then she covered a song by his called "Tumbling Down," which was on the Psychomoto, and also a singer named uh, Lisa Strike, who let's bring this all around, Mary, mm-hmm. provided backing vocals for John Cale uh, at the July first, nineteen seventy four concert. Oh, cool! So there you go. I like to bring it all around. So that that I just think that's a great song, though. I agree with you. I love the. I never heard the song because Cockney Rebel were not a band that was popular in North America. Oh, okay. Like, if you like Cockney Rebel yeah. growing up... You're British. You're British, yeah. Or a weirdo. Or a European. Because like, that was where they... That's, like, literally, I I never heard of them growing up at all. Hmm. It wasn't until I, I got a... um, It was a Q Magazine cassette called Drive. It was supposed to be, like, driving songs. And they said, these are good songs for driving. I don't hmm. know. This song is a good song for driving? Okay. But anyway, 
That's interesting. What I wonder what what constitute what constituted a good song for driving for them. Yeah. Well, by putting this song, I really under, don't understand. Yeah. Like it's not like it doesn't feel like a cruising song to me. No. It's really strange. But anyway, it's a great song. Like I mean, but as soon as I heard it, and what really what really made me happy to hear it, as I love that style of of guitar solos or guitar mm, playing. Yeah. So when that came up in the song, I was like, oh yeah, you got me. But also, you know, as a Bob Dylan fan, I love the very much the kind of mangled vocals of yeah. Steve Harley and and uh, and yeah, I just think it works works as a great. This is a great song. Very good. Very good indeed. That was our penultimate song, everyone. Now is our final song. We're gonna turn. We're gonna turn to another country that isn't another Canada. Another country isn't Canada. Isn't America? <gasps> what is isn't it? Britain? England, not England. What is it? Brazil. It's not Brazil. Is it uh, Sweden? It's not Sweden. Is it in Europe? It's not in Europe. Is it in North America? Nope. Is it in South America? Nope. <gasps> is it in Oceania? <laughs> it's in. I guess so. What is Oceania? Um, Australia. Oh New no, Zealand. it's not Australia. Uh, is it in Asia? It is. <gasps> Where? Where is it? This is from Japan, Mary. Oh, wow. This is uh, Cornelius. Okay. Not his real name. No. And this song is Thank You for the Music. Cool. From his album <clears throat> Phantasma that came out in 1997. I can't believe it's that old. Oh, my gosh. All right. Let's give it a listen, everyone.
And we're back. And Mary, that was, who was it? Uh, Cornelius, whose real name is uh, Kago Oyamata. That is correct. Hopefully I am pronouncing that right. It's okay. It could also be Ki- Kigo, um, yeah. but I'm just, I- I'm not sure. That's okay. You tried. So um, Cornelius came out of a, of a genre of Japanese music called Shibuya K. K basically means type or genre. So the Shibuya district, in the 90s anyway, was kind of the retail, the music retail center of Japan, of Tokyo anyway. Right. And so that's where all the, like, the record stores and stuff were, and the CD stores. And so this music was called that because it it was like, the idea of Shibuya K music is that it kind of uses like a cut and paste style. Okay. uh, That drew heavily from 1960s culture and music. Right. Combining it with the 1980s city pop sound of Japan. Oh, okay, cool. And city pop was also drew heavily from Western music as well, but more from the seventies in, in its in its sounds. Right. And then and okay, so but especially like for Shibuya, especially from orchestral pop. Okay. Greats like Bacharach, mm-hmm. Brian Wilson, mm-hmm. Phil Spector, mm-hmm. Serge Gainsbourg, mm-hmm. so people who used had a lot of orchestral sounds in their right. pop music were really influential to to the sound of Sh- Shibuya K. Cool. Another example of it would be this group called Pizzicato Five, who were quite kind of popular but in a more kitschy way here right. in north america i don't think i think cornelius was treated li- like not in a kitschy manner okay like i don't feel like people listen to him and go oh i like him because it's reminiscent of bach rock or whatever it's right it's more and, uh, and that's not really the idea of, sh- of shibuya no, like it was, seems like it's making its own thing it's, it's not right it's, it's not mimicking it's, it's a composite that creates yeah. its own sound exactly yeah yeah, yeah. it's a kind of like uh it's kind of like um the go team yes like you wouldn't say like oh the go team is like you know, mimicking this one style, you'd say, "Oh, the Go Team is like bringing together all these different styles and also their own thing yeah, to make this yeah. whole new thing." Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so, what's interesting with the album is that the album, the order of songs on the album are in the order they were recorded. Oh, okay. So he actually intended it as like uh, an immersive, immersive, cool uh, experience that you shouldn't separate into or put on compilation tapes. He said, "Right." So I don't want any of my songs to be on mixtapes. Did he really say that? No. Oh, okay. Good. <laughs> I've definitely put this this song on um, on mixes before. Uh, so true to its genre, Phantasma name checks the count the uh, count five. Okay. Who of course did Psychotic Reaction? Yep. Uh, the Clash mm-hmm. and Micro Disney, hmm. who 
were a band that featured Stereolab mainstay and High Llama's leader, Sean O'Hagan. Oh. Who contributes banjo to this song. Cool. Thank you for the music. Yeah, thank you for cool. the music. Yeah. And then, which also features one sample, because I don't think Shibuya K was a heavily sample style of right. music. It was more, like you say, it was more of a uh, bringing together of different elements. From elements. Different, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But he does have a sample, which is, of course, the opening to the Electric Company. Yes. Featuring the fantastic Rita Moreno, one mm-hmm. of my favorite actresses. Um, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. I love her. She's huh. so good in so many different things. Cool. She's great in Carnal Knowledge. Mm-hmm. She's great in West Side Story. Mm-hmm. She's great in The Rockford Files. Mm-hmm. She's great on The Electric Company, hmm. which is where I first saw her. I've only seen one of those. The Electric Company? Yeah. Mary. Yes. Gotta get out more. I guess so. Gotta get out to the 70s more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's some great movies from the 70s. You know, that was like the birth of, of great movies. No, I'm not saying that there's not. Just like the birth, the 40s were the birth of great movies and the 30s as well mm-hmm. and the 20s. Mm-hmm. But there's lots of good movies to explore from that time period. That's what I'm trying to say. Uh, the band was called the Short Circus. Who did the did? I think they were a studio amalgam, given a name for the for the Electric Company record. But anyway, so yeah, called the Electric Company theme, and that's Rita Moreno going doing the Hey You Guys part of it. Hey you guys. That's right. That's we're gonna that turn you on. We're gonna give you the power. Yep. <laughs> what did you say? Sorry, a clash. Yeah, and and um, thank you for the music was hey you guys and it's like boom clash oh yeah yeah <laughs> it's like stuff breaking yeah yeah sound of a kitten yeah, yeah so. <laughs> then uh, cornelius on harmonica and then the yeah it's a good song it is a good song a lot of fun mm-hmm. it's a good end it is to the side of, i of used the it as a um album finisher i believe okay okay and something because once here's the thing like i was gonna say mm-hmm. should be okay isn't so much about sampling as it was a musical curation of styles mm-hmm. and an exploration of musical meaning summed up as thank you for the music. Cool. I yeah. like that. <laughs> that's pretty nice. <laughs> there you go, everyone. So uh, that's the first half of our mixtape. Cool. Well, Mary, I'm glad that all of it, except for uh, generational weirdo, John Cale, hmm. passed muster for you. Thanks. Now, if people want to get in touch with us to tell me how much they enjoyed this, including John Cale, and you th- they think that Mary was wrong... Please contact us in the following ways. And Mary, how do they do that? I don't want them to uh, just email you and tell you good good stuff. You can email us and tell me good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> at um, sneakyd at sneakydragon.com. Or you can go to our message boards at sneakydragon.com. Or on Twitter at sneaky underscore dragon. Or on Facebook at sneakydragon. Or on sneakydragon.com, you can also find our snail mail address if you are so inclined. That's true. Yep. So, Mayor. Yes. Uh, thank you for joining me today in Stu Stu Studio. I do appreciate you coming by. Oh, thanks. And I appreciate you, dear listeners, for coming and joining us in the Rumpus Room. Yeah. Our virtual Rumpus Room together here yes. where we can... I mean, this is the safest place where people have been gathering. That's true. Through the through the coronavirus. Yes. So... Oh, Dad, way to date the podcast. <laughs> I, think, I think it comes predated. <laughs> what? Because what? there's a date on it when yeah. they download it? Yeah. Oh, come on. <laughs> Oops! Just hit my hit my glasses with my nose. Oh. Wait a second! Just hit my mic with my glasses and my nose. That's what mm-hmm. I meant to say. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, as as I pointed out earlier, I thought I turned off the sound of my phone. I apparently didn't, as it's messaging me. It's uh, just mom. Oh, it's just mom. She said, "Does anyone need anything from Savon? Uh, She's gonna pick up some dinner." Is that what she said? Yeah. For herself or for us? For us. M- mentioned that you're gonna eat with us. I am. <laughs> oh, that was me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone. The show is falling apart at the end here. We're, we're having dinner dinner plans in the middle of our show. Welcome to our family. 
it really is a family show. So thank you for joining <laughs> us. Dad, do you need anything from Savon? Um, I need... Uh, Sourdough? No, not yet. Mustard? No. Uh, do you need um, Do you need that meat that you like? No, I think... Oh, could you ask her to get some... Uh, pick up some uh, nacho chips for me? Yeah. Dad, nachos. Bag of, bag of nachos. Wait, but like Doritos? Yeah, yeah, Doritos. Okay. Or Old Dutch, whatever is on sale. Actually, I prefer Old Dutch. Nacho. Okay. Thank you, dear. No worries. Oh, I'll say dad's home for dinner, too. Dad's <laughs> home for dinner, too. Okay. Um. <laughs> so, should we end the podcast now, or I, should we have ended the podcast five minutes ago? I think we should have ended it five minutes ago. I we're, think people are interested in knowing what we're doing for dinner, and well, also that you need nacho chips. Yeah. Well, because I bought some of that cheese dip, and I want to use it. Oh, that queso? Yeah. It's good, right? I love it. Yeah. Queso's so good. <laughs> yeah. Plus, now everyone knows what you have for lunch every day, which is sourdough bread yep that meat you like and mustard that's pretty much it and cheese oh, what yeah. you put cheese on it now yeah you've adapted since when i was in school <laughs> when all that you did was sourdough genoa yeah. salami yeah mustard yellow mustard this salami it doesn't have to be genoa i like any kind of salami really mm. you do like genoa salami though well that's what mom buys me oh that's she likes it right she likes it in the sense that i know what this is i'll buy it for right that. gotcha whereas if i'm there i'm like mm, wine salami that sounds good hmm Oh, Hungarian. I'll try that for a change. Oh, look at that. Interesting. But anyway. We were doing sausage fine. tasting at work next week. Oh, yeah? Yeah, with the residents. It's o- it's our Oktoberfest <laughs> celebration. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Do they also get to taste beer? No, no beer. When we did our cheese tasting, everyone was like, where's the wine? Ha, ha, ha. And I was like, ah, ha, ha. We can't do that. <laughs> yeah. Is it a dry facility? Or you just can't have... I don't a, think we can serve alcohol. I, well, oh, we that's a, what it is. We don't have a liquor license. We don't have a liquor license, of course. Of um, course, what I'm thinking. Yeah, but... What if those ladies all w- drove, drove off somewhere? Yeah, right? Instead of just stumbling to their rooms. One of them does have a car. Oh, really? Of the ladies who comes to stuff, yeah. Mm. Mm. I think we've got about five residents with cars. Most of them don't drive so much anymore. Hmm. I think two or three of them still drive pretty regularly, though. Wow. Well, I think we should have ended five minutes ago. <laughs> yeah, probably. Anyway, <laughs> bye, guys. Bye, everyone. <laughs>